Episode 1. Stethoscope to Saving Lives, A Journey into the World of Medicine. Professionally speaking, um, I would like to thank all of you for taking your time to come and uh, watch episode one and I hope this is a journey that we can go through together. Um, Professionally Speaking is a career podcast where we go into eight episodes dissecting eight different careers for you to learn and understand. I'm your host Rahan Ali Muhammad and with me today I have a psychiatrist, uh, a doctor, Dr. Imran Versi with me today. He is a doctor by profession and we and you know it's I think a doctor is a profession that many people have thought of getting into or are into right now. Dr. Imran, good evening. How are you? Good evening, Rayan. Thank you so much for having me. No, thank you. So I wanna go into, you know, like you. Who are you? What do you do? Um, you know, your education. How I identify is as well, right? Yeah. If you'd like to, yeah. So my name is Imran um, and I am a medical doctor by profession. Um, so I was born and raised in Tanzania, Dar es Salaam. And uh, I studied at the medical university by the name of KCMC, which is in Moshi. Um, and thereafter, I did my internship at the National Hospital of Tanzania, which is in Dar es Salaam, by the name of Muhimbili. And then currently doing my specialization in psychiatry at the University of Nairobi. So yeah, it's my first time um, coming to Kenya. Okay, I hope Kenya has been nice to you. Yeah, so far. So far it's been nice. Okay. That's good to hear. So how long did it take for you to become a doctor? So a general practitioner, it it took me five years. So certain countries um, do their undergraduates, their MBBS or their medical degree for five years. And some other places they do it for six years. For example, um, I was told University of Nairobi do it for six years. But outside in certain places in the UK, in India, um, in Tanzania, we do it for five years, and then the one-year compulsory internship after the five years. Yeah. Okay. So, is there any sort of other education to become a GP? So, ideally, every country has its own laws. In, in Tanzania, you have to do your A level. So, I did Cambridge. Um, so, I did my AS and A two. And, uh, and majority of the medical universities require you, to, require you to have done physics, chemistry, biology. So the PC combi- PCB combination is a necessity. It's a prerequisite uh, before joining the medical college. And um, how you mentioned an undergraduation to get into medical school, is it, do you have to maybe do an undergrad in chemistry or biology or can it be anything? Yeah, so once you do your ASA2 in Physics, Chemistry, Biology, um, that A2 results of PCB is enough to get you into med school. So there's no other requirements. And can anyone become a doctor? Yeah, I mean, as long as you have um, good grades, because the competition for medical school is quite high. So sorry, I'm getting a phone call in the middle of, of this podcast. Uh, let me just put my phones on silence. 
I hope it's not an emergency. No worries. Thankfully. Yeah, so, yeah, I mean, anyone can become a doctor. I mean, it's, it's, uh, many people have this fear that uh, doctors are, you know, they read too much. I mean, of course, the requirement of reading is there. Um, the only difficulty with, with med school is that there's a lot of um, stuff to read. There's a lot of reading to be done in a very short period of time. So I remember when I finished my A2, because in AS, A2, yeah, you have one book, like for example, physics is one book, half of it for AS, half of it for A2, same with biology, same with chemistry. And then when I got into med school and we were told that the anatomy textbook is like double the size of my physics textbook for two years, and uh, there's an exam after four months. So, so it's not, it's, it's, it's just the difficulty is that there's too much to read, in a short period of time. So my first year was the most difficult year for me. First and last. First because I was not used to, uh, you know, having to read so much in a short period of time. But I had to, I learned from my seniors on the smart way of reading. You know, they, they told me that there's stuff that you need to know. And these are the things that will be asked in the exam, etc. And videos really helped me. I mean, uh, we have videos on YouTube different channels like osmosis, etc., which really helped me through my med school. So yeah, anyone can become a doctor. I mean, you just need to uh, be able to study. You need, you need to be able to take in that pressure of reading a lot in a short period of time. So why did you become a doctor? I mean, you know, there are so many other careers out there, you know, engineer, pilot. So why a doctor? Well, because stand-up comedy isn't very much uh, wanted in Dar. Uh, no, but I've always, I mean, I remember when I was two years of age, well, I don't remember, but my parents told me that I always used to, when we go to, a, when we used to go to a toy shop, I always used to go for the, you know, fake, the plastic stethoscope, <clears throat> the plastic injection. And when I was young, I used to get very sick very often. And whenever I used to go to the doctor's office, uh, I used to see that doctors are very much respected. You know, whenever a doctor passes by, in the community, maybe in, in a mosque setting or in any gathering, uh, people usually refer to each other by their name, but the doctor is given that, that, that prestige, you know, the respect, the hi doc, you know, welcome. And so I always, I always liked that. Uh, but when I grew up, more than that, I also realized that it is something that I've always wanted to be. It's not like I, I wanted to be something else. And then I got into medical school. No, I've, ne I've never been interested in, in professional dancing or something like that. So medicine was the only option for me. There was no other option. So you didn't have a backup plan? To be honest, no. No, I did not have a backup plan. Uh, it was either medicine or... Okay, my second option was... Um, yeah, my second option was dentistry, I remember. But medicine was, I think, the only option. I put dentistry as number five. Yeah. So are you happy being a doctor? Yeah, of course I am. Of course, um, it comes with certain pros and cons, right? I mean, the pros are what I just mentioned, um, uh, the value or the respect for a doctor. The money is not bad, uh, although we are underpaid in East Africa. But uh, I mean, the cons are when you start off as a junior doctor, you get um, a lot of night shifts, a lot of calls, 
and then when you go into residency it decreases and then when you become a specialist of course it, it wins off so you have lesser time uh, lesser hours per day to work so that's an advantage in the beginning it's a struggle but then after that it's it's not bad so you mentioned about pay and i wanted that was going to be my next question on average how much do doctors make in kenya or in tanzania or both in global we can just say global average uh, of course uk the us europe pays a lot they, they pay insane amounts of money uh, to medical doctors when i say medical doctors now i'm talking about general practitioners right a general practitioners take home salary in tanzania because it's a low income country generally a doctor would make anything between 800 to 1000 dollars take home per month uh, in kenya is higher because of the economy uh, in kenya looking at 1500 dollars for a general practitioner to start off as a starting salary but of course once you specialize it's more so for example once you become <clears throat> let's say a surgeon <clears throat> any form of surgery a bone specialist an orthopedic surgeon a gynecologist uh, or ophthalmologist any field of surgery when you take you get your of course the pay is much more it's nearly is double than the general practitioner salary and on top of that you even make per surgery as well so yeah uh, the pay is not as much once you're done but after you specialize the, the pay is good so ai has grown a lot over the years artificial intelligence what's your view on it my view on ai did you get these questions from chat gpt no no i didn't uh yeah so but yeah. a fun fact is a fun fact is um i got the name from chat gpt so professionally speaking did come from chat oh, gpt nice. that's a very good question so the question is will ai take up the the response or the job of doctors oh, um the question was what your oh, view, on view on ai uh so uh, let me ask chat gpt uh no my my view on ai i mean um the artificial intelligence tools uh and apps that have come up right now is insane i mean you can actually put somebody's photo uh in a video setting and you would think that it's that person so it's it's really insane however um i would be lying if i say i don't use apps like chat gpt i do use them occasionally uh, especially when it comes to writing emails i think they are awesome uh when i have to write professional emails uh for example if i write my patients reports uh before attaching the reports i have to write a, a, an an email which is quite descriptive uh and so i prefer i write it up and then i just ask chat gpt to improve the grammar and, and it it really helps me out however i've tried not to use it very often because i noticed that uh the more i was using it the more i mean the lazier i became so i feel that when people start relying or depending on such ai tools uh they stop reading because then your vocabulary cannot improve anymore because you're too reliant too dependent on such ai apps so I, on one hand i i think they're really helpful but on the other hand i feel that they should their use should be limited so do you fear that ai could you know become you know a general practitioner in the future because i mean i had seen a video where a robot was you know doing surgery on a grape so you mm. know 
do you think it's possible that you know in the next you know 50 100 yeah. years we are going to have you know medical doctors where they're going to be diagnosing us you know doing giving us you know health care so leaving the 50 100 years apart even now there are certain applications where if you go um, and you write down your symptoms say vomiting nausea fever back pain etc the app will actually give you a list of possible diagnoses and then the app will also give you a list of investigations to do. So it's there even now, um, whereby you could use it as a substitute. However, uh, <clears throat> so there's two things. One is the general practitioner part. Many times in medical general practitioner settings, you have the doctor giving you a physical exam as well. Unfortunately, AI, as of now, I don't see it doing that, giving a patient a physical exam. But on the other hand, um, when it comes to my field, the field of psychiatry, because this is my field of specialization, I feel that that's an impossibility because, as you know, psychiatry uh, combines a mixture, is a combination of a mixture of physical, psychological, behavioral, emotional symptoms. Uh, I mean, uh, an AI will not be able to assess a mental health status of a person when the person is talking to them or ask the right questions. So you need that emotional part as well of somebody who, who you know, is with you physically to be able to assess your mental state. state. So within the field of psychiatry, I, I don't see that happening. Uh, but with general medicine, there's a possibility to some extent, but not entirely. Okay, so is the career competitive? I mean, you know, right now you can go to a hospital and you have all these different doctors there. So is it competitive to get into and to stay into? So fortunately for me, psychiatrists are very, very few in East Africa. If you look at the statistics, you'll find that psychiatrists are one of the medical specialization fields that we have very, very few psychiatrists all over. And even globally, if you look at the specialist, for example, child specialists, pediatricians, or internal medicine specialists, physicians, or surgeons, or gynecologists, they're quite high in number. Although in, in our countries, in African countries, we obviously do not meet the requirement of the WHO uh, for the ratio of a number of patients to doctors. Uh, the doctors are very few. I don't know about outside, but in our countries, they're very few. Psychiatrists are, are really, really rare. Um, and you see there are many hospitals that have many specialists, but you won't find many psychiatrists in that setting. So in that case, I'm, I'm fortunate. And speaking of general doctors as well, we have a lack of medical doctors in, in our countries, especially in East Africa. Of course, we do. So the reason that maybe you find that um, there might be many doctors. See, the thing is, many doctors opt to go for these big hospitals, right? The likes of Aga Khan, or here we have MP Shah in Dar, we have Aga Khan as well. Uh, the reason that they opt to go for these hospitals is because of the pay. It's quite good, and the services you get. However, apart from those hospitals, if you go to government hospitals, you will find that there are like probably so many patients, and there's one doctor. And there's a huge uh, line of, of patients waiting for one doctor. So, of course, there's a lack of doctors, generally speaking. So is there space for more people in, you know, my generation, a few generations before me and coming generations to become doctors? Of course, of course there is, especially in our countries. Like I said, there's a big gap um, when it comes to the requirement of doctors. The gap is too big and 
I mean, the more the doctors, the more patients will get catered for. So do you see that as an issue now, like, you know, in Kenya, in Africa, do you, th- do you see that there's an issue where we are facing, you know, more patients and less doctors? Yeah, of course. I, I remember I went once to a government hospital in Dar and there were like 400 patients waiting and the doctor hadn't arrived yet. And so I asked the head nurse at the triage, um, is there another doctor? She said, no, there's just one today. For the, for the whole day, there's just one doctor doing a 24-hour shift. There's like 400, 500 patients waiting with their insurance cards waiting for the doctor. So, of course, the reason is because we, we tend to rush to these big hospitals, we forget that um, Africa doesn't just have three hospitals. It has many, many more. And in those hospitals, you'll find that doctors are not there. So, of course, there's a need for medical specialists. So what solution would you give to this kind of problem? Well, the solution would be to have more doctors to increase the pay for medical doctors. Um, Many doctors do not like going to work in such hospitals where there's actually a need for doctors because of the pay and because of the number of hours they are made to work. Instead of eight-hour shifts, they're made to work 20-hour shifts. And no one would prefer to go to such a setting. So I think by increasing um, opportunities for medical students, by increasing grants or loans, um, by increasing the pay scale for pay grade for doctors, by decreasing the number of hours that they work, uh, you know, a conducive environment generally for doctors, I think many more would go in, would pursue this field. Okay, so I want to move on to the last question for today's episode. What's one piece of advice you would give someone thinking of entering, you know, thinking of becoming a doctor? So, uh, one piece of, just one. Can I give two or three? No, one is okay. Um, you can Because I've got a bit of brain freeze now. Um, one advice that I would give, so my cousin wants to become a doctor now. He's just finished A2. Uh, Form 6, we, we say Form 6, I don't know. Do you guys have Form 6 here as well? So we have Form Systems. I, no, I think, yeah. Yeah, but, yeah even we okay, do, So yeah. basically Form 6 or A2, right? Yeah. Uh, before starting medicine, and we had a chat, and <clears throat> I told him that you have your two-month holiday now, sleep as much as you can, eat as much as you can, gain weight, no problem, uh, because once you start... It's not like it's you, you, when you start medicine, many people think once I start medicine, once I become a doctor, once I study uh, medicine to become a doctor, I won't have time for anything else, which is false. I mean, when, I, when we were studying as well, we had time for football, we had time. I mean, it doesn't show now I play sports, but I used to. Um, so you do have time, of course. Um, it's just that you need to set an hour or an hour and a half every day so that you can study. Uh, because it, it, it's impossible for you to uh, follow the same route that we usually follow in school, which is I'll study a week before exams. It, it, it is impossible to do that for med school. I mean, it has to be a continuous process uh, because end of the day, what you are studying is you are studying to save lives. Um, and, and so it is important for medical students to, to set a timetable. The timetable is extremely, extremely important. I remember when I was in school, I used to wake up whatever time I want. I used to bunk classes the way I want, come back, sleep, play FIFA, go to sleep again. Uh, but with, with med school, there, I, I had to you know, sit down and say, this is becoming too much. Because when I look at the timetable, I'm like, I have to study this many pages 
and in a month I have my exam, it's impossible for me to, you know, say I'll do it later or procrastinate. So one advice I'll give medical students is it's, it's, it's not impossible, it's very much doable. If it was impossible, we wouldn't have hundreds of doctors graduating every year. So if they can do it, anyone can do it. Uh, you don't need to have a baseline IQ or say this much to become a doctor, no. Uh, but having a timetable, having a set timetable daily really, really helps uh, for you to pass properly and to become a good general practitioner. Okay, thank you, Dr. Imran, for taking some time out of your night so to do this. Time. I really appreciate yeah. it. <laughs> no, thank you. I really appreciate it. Um, to the viewers, um, do stay tuned for episode two. It will be coming out soon. Uh, follow us on our socials, Instagram and YouTube at Professionally Speaking. From me and Dr. Imran, we are out. We hope you enjoyed today's episode and we hope to see you soon. Episode 2. Crafting Tomorrow, Designing a Career of Innovation. Hello and welcome to Episode 2 of Professionally Speaking. Once again, I'm your host Rahan Ali Muhammad and I welcome you back to Episode 2 and I hope we can, you know, go on this journey and continue it. I hope you enjoyed episode one with Dr. Imran. I really appreciate him for coming out, taking some time out of his day to do it. Um, also very sorry about the audio quality. I hope it's a lot better in this episode. Um, if there any, you know, anything you want to tell me, do um, either comment it on below the video or do get in touch by Instagram or email. But without further ado, welcome to episode two. With me today, I have Rezwan Ahmed an engineer by profession who's an who's specifically an electrical engineer Rezwan, good evening how are you hi Rehan. good how are you happy to be here i'm good um thank you very much for taking some time out of your day to do this i really appreciate it no problem happy to be here all right so let's get started so Rezwan, who are you you know who is Rezwan? what does he do? Sure, yeah, thanks. Um, so I'm a project development director at Cross Boundary Energy. Um, Cross Boundary Energy is a renewable energy investment firm. We finance and develop uh, renewable energy projects across Africa and Australia for commercial and industrial customers. So we do um, solar uh, photovoltaic projects, so solar PV. Uh, wind projects as well, and battery energy storage projects for large commercial and industrial customers. And in my role, I oversee the commercial and technical development of these projects um, across Africa mainly. Okay, so I want to go into sort of your engineer career. So how long did it you know, take for you to become an engineer? Yeah, sure. So I, I studied electrical engineering in Canada. I went to the University of Waterloo for my, my undergrad. Uh, I did electrical engineering, like I said. Uh, it took five years. The engineering program uh, length varies uh, from one country to another. Uh, it also varies from one university to another. So at the University of Waterloo, we had what's called a co-op program, uh, which is 
where you have um, one term of school and then another term of an internship and you do that for five years uh, back to back. So you don't get much of a summer break, unfortunately, but um, after five years, if you go to Waterloo, you will have the opportunity to do six different internships and you can choose to do that at six different companies or one company for all six internships or however uh, you'd like to, to set that up. Other universities in Canada have co-op programs as well, um, but in some cases those are optional. Uh, at Waterloo, it was a compulsory requirement as part of the uh, electrical engineering program there. And other universities also have it structured in a different way. So they might do a co-op program or an internship program in the summer, you know, from first year or from second year onwards. Uh, for, for us, uh, our co-op programs or our co-op internships, sorry, they started straight from the first year all the way up to up to um, the final year. So we, we had four years of, of academic uh, courses. But because we have this co-op program, the overall length of the program became five years. Uh, in the UK, for example, um, engineering programs tend to be three years for a bachelor's and four years for a master's. Um, and then they have different types of uh, internship programs as well uh, that you could add on to that. Um, so, yeah, like I said, it varies by country, but but this was what my program was. So the program you did, was it an undergrad, um, a master's or a PhD? So so my program was an undergrad. Uh, it's it's called uh, Bachelors of Applied Science. Um, and again, the way that the degree is named varies from one country to another. So in Canada, usually uh, undergraduate engineering degrees are, are given the degree uh, Bachelor of Applied Science uh, in whatever um, engineering specialty you're focusing on. So my degree is Bachelor of Applied Science in Electrical Engineering. Um, other degrees would have Bachelor of Applied Science, for example, in Mechanical Engineering, as, as an example. In other countries, the engineering degree sometimes is called a bachelor's of engineering. And in other countries as well, you might have a bachelor of science in engineering. So um, the, the name varies, uh, but but basically that's what an engineering degree is uh, from one country to the other. So to become an engineer, do you need to do just an undergrad or like, do you feel like if you did a master's, it would help you more than just being an undergrad? Yeah, it's a good question. So uh, again, it depends on what you're trying to do with your degree. In Canada, the uh, engineering profession is a regulated profession. So similar to how uh, medicine and law are regulated professions, meaning you need a license to practice those professions. Uh, in certain countries, you need a license to practice engineering. So Canada is one of those countries. In order to become a licensed professional engineer, the minimum requirement is you need to have a bachelor's degree or an undergraduate degree in engineering, uh, in any engineering field. Uh, that degree uh, needs to be accredited by the Canadian Engineering Accreditation Board. And then you have to go through a series of exams uh, as well as some experience requirements in order to qualify as a professionally, uh, as a professional engineer. Uh, licensed to practice engineering uh, in Canada. Um, if you want to go into research, obviously, then uh, you need you need further um, degrees. So you know, masters, a PhD, uh, and so on. So it depends on 
what field you want to specialize in and also what you'd like to be doing because not everybody who gets an engineering degree does the same type of work. Engineering is quite a broad field and and people who go into studying engineering come out and do very different things. Um, so it's it's not a one size fits all um, approach. Uh, it, it really depends on what you're looking to do with your career after you study engineering. Uh, that would guide what the next steps would be. In terms of a master's, it, it's a question that that many people who study uh, engineering in, the, in their undergrad ask. You know, do I do I need to get a master's to help me? And again, it depends on uh, if you're interested in specializing in a particular area of your engineering field then it could be beneficial to have a master's because you'll get more in-depth knowledge in that particular area that you're specializing in. Um, but like I said earlier, in order to practice engineering as a professional engineer, the minimum requirement is a bachelor's degree or an undergrad degree. So why did you become an engineer? You know, there's so many other careers, you know, doctors, pilots, you know, lawyers. Why did you become an engineer? Yeah, so I, I became an engineer uh, for a number of reasons. Uh, one of the reasons was that um, I used to enjoy science a lot. So when I was in uh, in elementary school and high school, my favorite subjects were always the science subjects. Um, so uh, it's something I enjoyed and, and I was also good at those subjects. And then I, I was also pretty good at math. And so the combination of science and math sort of led to a certain list of options in terms of careers. So uh, for me, I was deci deciding between going into medicine or going into engineering. And the reason why I picked engineering was because um, I felt that it allowed me to have more options open. So if you go into engineering and you study uh, engineering for your undergrad degree, um, that doesn't close off opportunities for you to do other things. In fact, um, engineering is usually considered a good foundation to go into a variety of different careers. So you have people who go and study engineering and become professional engineers and you know, specialize in a particular field of engineering and do that for their career. You have other people who go into engineering for their undergrad and then uh, choose to go into finance. And because of the quantitative aspects of your engineering program, and the amount of math you do and the amount of you know really complicated math that you have to go through over the four or five years that you're studying, people in the finance industry find that very useful because you have that quantitative ability after having gone through that, that undergrad program that you can easily transition into a, a finance type uh, job or career. Other people choose to go into research uh, in a variety of different fields. Um, and then there's also engineers that go into business. Um, so again, it's a good good foundational degree for that. And lastly, you know, I mentioned that I was d debating between medicine and engineering. Uh, one of the reasons why I picked engineering was because in case I wanted to go into medicine later, I could use engineering as a, as a prerequisite for that because I was planning to go and study in Canada. And in Canada, in order to do medicine, you need to have an undergraduate degree in science first, and it can be any science degree and engineering counts as a science degree. So uh, basically by doing my undergrad in engineering, I still had the option after I graduated to go and apply to medical school and, and my degree would be recognized for that. Looks like you had a lot of backup options. 
Yeah, yeah, for sure. So I, I think, you know, it's in, in life, it's, it's good to have options because you never know what's going to happen in the future. And so that's the way I was thinking about it. But also from, from you know, my own interests, like, you know, you asked why I went into engineering. Uh, you know, not only was I interested in science and then things, but, you know, there's a reason why I specifically picked electrical engineering. And, and that's because um, I was always fascinated by um, electricity. I was fascinated by technology, um, electronics, um, power and energy systems. Um, those are things that um, I was always interested in reading about and learning about. And so naturally, I felt that if I had to pick a, a specialty within the engineering field, electrical was the one that stood out for me because it, it gave me the opportunity to learn more about those areas that I was interested in uh, and potentially to have a career uh, in, in one of those areas. So are you happy being an engineer? Yeah, I am. Um, I think uh, I found my... Um, undergraduate education quite valuable and that experience of having gone through that it, it wasn't easy um, engineering is not an easy degree program to go through so you know in some respects it was like five years of torture <laughs> but ultimately you come out having built a whole host of different skills um, including the softer skills like you know resilience and the ability to um, solve problems not just um, academic problems, but you know life problems. And so um, I found that quite valuable in terms of the skills that it helped me to develop. Um, and then when I graduated, I went into uh, professional engineering. So I worked for an engineering consulting firm called Arup, uh, and we were designing buildings and infrastructure projects all over the world. And I, I worked at Arup for over four years after I graduated. Ultimately, I became a professional engineer through that experience, um, and I found it quite rewarding because uh, one of the things I enjoyed uh, about being an engineer uh, and working on designing buildings and infrastructure projects is that um, at the end of the day, all the work that you're doing, you get to see it in real life. You get to see something real being built um, from the work that, that you've put effort into. Um, and it's always rewarding to see that happening. It's not just um, paperwork or it's not just something you're sitting on a computer um, and, and doing for hours and hours a day. But ultimately, you're, you're, you're getting to impact um, the design of something that will be built in real life. And not only that, but you'll actually end up impacting people's lives because um, engineering is in everything that you see around you. You know, the, the microphone and speaker system that you're using was designed by engineers. The computers that we're using were designed by engineers. Uh, the building that you're sitting in was designed by engineers. So in all aspects of life, engineering has some sort of impact or influence. Um, and it's, well, it's quite rewarding to see um, that the work that you do has an impact on people's lives. So you mentioned about, um, you know, engineering having an impact in our lives. Like, you know, you said the phone we're using, laptop, buildings and all. That leads me to my next question. Do you fear that AI could take over your job in the future? Do you fear that, you know, AI will become the engineer? You know, you have a robot, you know, planning out schematics for building, you know, building microphones, speakers, laptops. Yeah, it's a good question. And I think... Um... Yeah, AI has a huge potential to change many different industries and many different careers. 
I think that there are certain aspects of the work that engineers do today that will definitely be impacted by AI. And because of that, the work that engineers do will change. Um, having said that, not all engineers do the same type of work. You know, engineering is a very broad field. There's many different specialties within engineering. The main specialties are electrical, mechanical, chemical, and civil. And then um, the rest of the specialties are usually a combination of those different different ones, but those four would be the core ones. I, I think there's aspects within each of those specialties that will be impacted by AI, but I don't think that the role of the engineer will, will go away completely because of AI. In my view, engineering also has a human element to it. Um, one of the things that is important as an engineer is that you have a duty to the public uh, in terms of protecting safety. And sometimes when you're working on an engineering problem or a design, there's a human element that needs to be considered about how will the design impact people or impact people's lives. And I don't think currently that AI has the ability to take that into consideration uh, because I, I think AI is operating within a certain set of rules. Um, I mean, ultimately AI has been created by humans and uh, you know, humans define what those parameters are within which that AI program would operate. So I think you still will need that human element to make those judgment calls when it comes to safety, uh, when it comes to protecting um, human interests and also, you know, engineering problems tend to be complex. And yes, AI is, is great for data crunching and solving problems, you know, certain types of complex problems. But I think that it's always important to have that human element involved in any design. So, you know, I want to move into, like, you know, the now. So is the career competitive? Yeah, engineering is a, is a very competitive career. You know, to, to get into an engineering program, at uh, any of the top engineering schools in the world, um, you need to have really good grades um, and not only good grades, but good extracurriculars as well, because um, most good schools are looking for well-rounded individuals um, and it's really competitive to, to get into any engineering program. Having said that, I think many programs are competitive. So it's not only engin engineering that's a competitive program to get into, but I'm speaking from the perspective of having gone through an undergraduate program in engineering. And, and usually there's a whole process of, you know, writing essays as part of your applications and things that is common across um, many of the degree programs that you uh, apply for. Uh, but yeah, engineering tends to have quite a high requirement in terms of your, your grades uh, and, and what they're expecting. Uh, and then, you know, to help to differentiate yourself, it, it always helps to have um, extracurriculars uh, as well uh, as, as a strong part of your application. Um, and then, you know, after you graduate, the competition doesn't stop there, right? After you graduate, you're competing for jobs. And engineering is quite a competitive field from that perspective as well, because there is a lot of really smart people that are graduating with engineering degrees um, from different schools. and Many of them are, are looking to apply to the same jobs. And so the job market is also competitive. But the good thing is engineering is a growing field. You know, there's um, lots of technological advancement. There's lots of infrastructure advancement. There's lots of different aspects 
of the world economy that require engineers. And there's this demand, this constant demand for engineers. So um, I think as much as it's competitive, it's also a growing field. So there's opportunities, you know, wherever you look in the world uh, for engineers. So would you stay in the career? Would you be an engineer maybe for the next 20, 30 years? Yeah, I, I think it's a it's a tricky question. Uh, it's it's hard to answer that with a yes or no uh, because it's not it's not it's not black or white. So so basically, for me, I studied electrical engineering and I am a licensed professional electrical engineer. However, I'm not practicing engineering at the moment. Um, the work that I do is not considered practicing engineering because I'm not working on designs. For example, uh, the work that I do involves um, looking at renewable energy investments and, and helping to structure uh, you know, agreements that help those renewable energy uh, projects come into fruition and also overseeing the, the, the technical development of these um, renewable energy projects. But I'm, I'm not the person actually designing, um, designing the solar plant or the wind farm or you know, putting together the design drawings and things like that. There's, there's other engineers that do that. But having said that, the fact that I studied engineering and understand the fundamentals uh, and also the fact that I worked as an electrical engineer um, for uh, a few years as part of my career helps me to understand what's going on and understand what questions to ask. So, you know, going forward in, in, in the future, I'll still be an engineer because I studied engineering. Uh, but what I might be doing in my day to day job may or may not be engineering. So I, I don't know if that answers the question, but but hopefully it gives you a sense of like it's it's not a yes or no, but it's it's sort of uh, it, there's different factors involved, and you know you can you can be a member of a profession uh, without necessarily uh, practicing that profession on a day-to-day -day basis, but you can still benefit from the knowledge that you've gained uh, by either studying or working in that profession. So do you think there is space for more people to join the career? I mean, you know, I have friends that are you know interested in becoming engineers i know other people in my generation maybe a few generations before me and the coming generations so do you think there's space for more engineers to come into the field yeah absolutely uh, like i said earlier engineering is a growing field you know you look at technology today you know smartphones and computers and so on there's constant innovation that's happening and the innovation is being done by engineers and the people who bring the theory uh, into real life are our engineers. So, you know, the, all of the big tech firms, you know, Google, Microsoft, Apple, Amazon and, and others, they, you know, their foundation is built by engineers, basically, like uh, they, they, they hire, you know, thousands of engineers. Um, to, to help them build the products and services that they offer. And there's more firms like that all around the world. And uh, technology is quite a big part of our lives and it'll continue to be a big part of our lives. Uh, and as long as that's the case, that means that there will continuously be a demand for engineers. Having said that as well, like I said earlier, um, not all engineers are working in, in that field of technology. There's, there's engineers that do other things. So for example, um, buildings need to be built and you know 
for the foreseeable future, we will have a demand for buildings of different types to be built, you know, residential buildings, commercial buildings, recreational buildings. All those types of projects um, require um, engineers uh, for them. So you, you need civil engineers and mechanical engineers and electrical engineers and structural engineers to be involved in those um, buildings projects or infrastructure projects around the world. Uh, you know, you have transportation projects that are coming up like roads and bridges and public transit infrastructure needing to be built. All those areas require the involvement of engineers. You also have the pharmaceutical industry. Chemical engineers um, are involved in, in that space. You've got factories being built. Um, you know, the people who map out the processes um, for a manufacturing facility usually have some sort of an engineering background. So, you know, wherever you look, I think there will be um, a huge demand for engineers going into the future. So the last question for today is what's one piece of advice you would give someone thinking about becoming an engineer? Yeah, it's a, it's a good question. I don't know if there's one piece of advice I would give, but um, perhaps there's some, some general advice I would give. If you're considering going into engineering, I, I would say that it's a good field to go into. You know, I am biased because I am an engineer, so um, I, I would only say good things about the profession. But I, I think it's quite a rewarding uh, profession to go into. But the one thing to keep in mind is if you choose to study engineering in your undergrad, that doesn't mean you're locked into that one career path. So you should view it as an option that um, you know, allows you to, to consider engineering as a profession, but you can also go and do something else completely different. And like I mentioned earlier, engineering is a good foundation to go into many different things. So if you're, if you're thinking about going into engineering, but you're not sure if you wanna be an engineer after you graduate or you wanna work as an engineer, that's completely fine. You know, many people who go into engineering don't end up becoming engineers as, you know, as part of their careers or professional engineers, they go and do something else. So yeah, the one thing I would say is like, don't be locked in. What I would say is to follow your passions. If you're interested in science and math and you enjoy those subjects, um, and also if you enjoy making a real world impact um, by using science and math, and you enjoy building things and you enjoy, you know, seeing theory being put into practice or you enjoy solving problems because engineering is all about solving problems, then I would recommend that you, you consider engineering um, as, as a potential path. And then once you go into it, you know, you'll, you'll learn new things, other options will, will, will open up and um, you'll be able to have a good foundation to work from, you know, with, with an engineering degree. So. That, that would be my sort of high level advice. And also, like you mentioned, you know, as an engineer, you can get into things like finance, medicine, all these other careers. So, I mean, it does look like a good career to bring you a foundation to, you know, your future. Yeah, absolutely. It's a, it's a good, like I said, good foundational program to go into uh, because it equips you with those, with those, uh, with those skills. Uh, the other thing I would say on this is, like, you know, uh, engineering is not only about the science and math, it's also about the problem solving. And what what you get by going through an engineering program is the ability to to look at any kind of problem 
and try and break it down into its different components and and try and solve it. And like that, the frameworks of problem solving that you get by going through an engineering degree are are helpful in different areas of life, not not only in in your career, but in in other aspects as well. Um, And so, you know, those softer skills are also things that are quite valuable to have. Uh, The problem solving skills, the um, detail orientedness, the ability to, you know, know what questions to ask. So that sort of inquisitive nature, you, you, you really develop that as you go through an engineering program because, you know, the, the program is quite intense. But, you know, after you come out of it, some of the, some of the skills that you're practicing by going through that program start to become second nature and, and, you know, you can take them into different aspects of your life. Thank you, Rezwan, for that interesting conversation. I know it went by really fast, but I think I learned a lot about engineering. Will I become an engineer? Maybe not. I don't think my math grades are as good for that as I think they should be. But hopefully this has helped someone, you know, get a bit more insight into the engineering career. Thank you very much for taking some time out of your busy day to do this. I really appreciate it. Yeah, no problem, Rehan. Really happy to be here, and I hope that um, the information I shared uh, will will be helpful to some people. Yeah, I hope so too. To the viewers, thank you very much for you know listening, taking some time to listen. I hope you do enjoy it. Um, do come back next episode that should be coming out soon. From me and Rezwan, um, we are out. Rezwan, any last words? No, uh, I think uh, I think that covered it, but um, all the best to anyone who's considering an engineering uh, career. Um, I think it's a rewarding career to go into um, and, um, you know, go in without any fear. Um, it's it's a really good, good career. So do follow us. Thank you, Rezwan, once again for that. Do follow us on all our social media pages, um, YouTube, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Instagram, so at Professionally Speaking. Do follow us on that. From here in Resbon, we are out. I hope you enjoyed. We hope to see you again soon. Episode 3 Climbing the Ladder, A Businessman's Tale Hello, good morning, good afternoon, and good evening. Welcome to Professionally Speaking. My name is Rahan Ali Muhammad, your host, and I would like to welcome you to episode three this pro- podcast. Today with me, I have Ali Jawad Molu, a business owner of Solutions Africa based in Mombasa, Kenya. Their aim is to create solutions for different problems in Africa, specifically environment friendly. Good evening, Ali Jawad. How are you? Good evening, Rehan. Thank you for having me. I'm good. How are you? Good, good. So first, I'd like to thank you for, you know, coming out and doing this. Really appreciate it. So we're just going to go over around questions. And we'll just get into it, have a good conversation. The viewers can sort of understand a bit more about starting up a business what the difficulties are, you know, how to get through it. So first, can you sort of give an introduction about yourself? What did you do? What did you study? So born and raised in Mombasa, uh, I studied uh, 
my I did my high school here in Mombasa, and then I went to the UK. I went to the University of Buckingham, small town in the UK, about 15-20 minutes from Milton Keynes. I did my undergraduate degree in business management, and then I did a master's in business administration, so an MBA. And yeah, I got back into Kenya and found an opportunity, found a gap in the market, and we tried to exploit it. And we opened up, as you mentioned, Solutions Africa. It's an electric mobility company, so we're focusing on electric tuk-tuks uh, in the coastal region. Uh, for those of you watching, Rehan, yourself as well, you know how popular tuk-tuks are in in the coastal region. Everywhere you go, left, right, center, behind you, you're going to see a tuk-tuk, whether it's red, green, blue, yellow, red. You know, you're, you're going to see tuk-tuks wherever you go. So we thought that you know, since the world is moving electric and, and everyone's implementing it, why not uh, in Kenya? There's, there's absolutely no issue in, in starting it up. And that's what we did. And it's been a year and a half now, approximately. So you mentioned about your sort of education on doing an undergraduation in business management and a master's in business administration. Is it a must to go to university to start a business? No, I wouldn't say it's a must. I think if you have the right people around you, the right people guiding you, even if you do study at university and you're fresh out of university, you'd still need assistance. Okay, maybe it, it, it would be very beneficial to go to university because the stuff you learn, especially along the way, can help you, you know, as you start your business. But in terms of being a fresh graduate, I think experience is also very important. So. It has its ups and downs, and uh, we'll look into it, uh, I'm sure, as we, as we keep talking. Yeah. So how long did it take to become sort of a business owner? You know, the education aspect of it. So it took me about three and a half years uh, to finish both my undergraduate degree and my master's because I did it in a very short period of time. I also did a summer term in uh, that's... Only It only happens with a few universities in, in the UK, and the University of Buckingham was one of them. So I was able to do more in a shorter period of time. Everyone was out, you know, in summer, you know, busy chilling on holiday. I said, let me get this done. Let me um, do things a bit quicker because time is limited, right? And, and if you're slow, then you might miss out on any opportunities. So that's what I was trying to avoid, and I thank God it, it went well. So... You took around three and a half years. Do you think if you spent maybe more time in in your education, do you think it would have impacted you more? Good question. No, I, I don't think it would because I, I already learned all the content. What I needed to do is uh, is to get on, you know, on the ground and, and in the field, you know, the real life sort of, experiences because a lot of what you learn at university is very important it is but it's also very different to what is actually happening and another thing is i was studying in the uk and i'm working here in kenya i started my thing up in kenya so two different you know playgrounds so a lot of adjusting a lot of understanding it took time a lot of mistakes you know that that really made me who i am today or is shaping me to who i want to be so what made you get into business, you know? I mean, business, I think, is something that's very well known, not only in Kenya, around the world. Many people have started up their own businesses, continuing family businesses. 
But for you, what was that spark that made you say, I want to go and study business management? Um, I've always, as I've been growing up, I've always seen my dad, you know, in the business field and, and the family as well, you know, all revolving around business. I've also seen how difficult some of the fields are, like medicine and, and you know, getting into such sorts. It wasn't really my uh, my interest. I wasn't really interested in, in any of those fields. I just wanted to do business because another thing is business is so wide and it really brings out a lot of opportunities instead of focusing on let's say for example medicine medicine is also wide but somewhat limited whereas business is is wide you know there's hr there is um accounting and yeah you would need to do a few extra modules for financials and stuff but it there is opportunity you know when when it's business uh I mean, that's what I think. And, and yeah, like I said earlier, I've, I've grown up seeing everyone around me, my family doing business, and there was a lot of opportunities for me. So I said, you know, let me get into, let me get into business. So do you think there's any other career apart from business that is, very, is as wide as business in terms of opportunities? And I can't think of any. Not really. Do you have anything in mind? Not really, as per se. I think even something like medicine can be even wide, you know. Uh, you can be it a can, general yeah. practitioner, be a surgeon, a pediatrician, go into mental health. Yeah. So I think there's correct, a lot. Correct. And then, I think every career has its, you know, differences. Agreed, agreed. And I might sound a bit critical on the other, on the other careers, but maybe it's just my passion that's talking. Yeah. I feel passion is something that is the biggest thing you need in a career. I think that's one advice, personally, I would give to someone. If you don't have the passion, you wouldn't go far, you know? Agreed, 100%. So, I mean, we see, it. we see a lot of people whose parents push them into something they don't really want to do, you know? And then, I mean, I've personally seen at universities a lot of medicine students. I had a lot of medic friends. A lot of them were like, it's not really my thing. I really don't want to do it, but it's my parents. You know, my dad's a GP and he really wants me to get into it as well. And they're not happy. And eventually they go through four and a half, five years. And on the last year, the last year, they're like, you know, I'm sick of it. I'm tired. And that's five years down the drain or not even then, even after graduating, you know, that passion is not there. And you're not able then to connect with your clients and your customers. So like you said, I 100% agree with you. Passion is extremely, extremely important. So speaking of passion, I mean, I've seen from, you know, the past couple of minutes I've been talking, I see your passion is very big for being a business owner or a businessman, as you could say. So are you happy with your career? I thank God, yes, I am. Uh, there's no other place I'd what? like to be. Okay. So what makes it happy? You know, what makes it something that every day you wake up, you're looking forward to going to work? What's that thing that makes you look forward? So Solutions Africa is not the only thing I'm doing. I'm also I'm also in the logistics industry as that's the family business. So I'm I'm trying to juggle a lot of things at once. I think my main role in the other company, Console Base Limited and Transfrate, that's a CFS and a freight forwarding company is going out and closing deals, meeting new people, networking, you know, uh, you know, the satisfaction you get and the drive that you have 
I mean, not every deal goes through, not every deal works, but for those that do, the joy, the joy that you get in them is, is really fulfilling, you know? It's a very fulfilling job to me. And, and I really enjoy it. And, and I think that's what drives and pushes me into, into doing this every single day. Yeah, you do get your ups and downs, but overall, you know, there's a lot of learning, a lot of growth and a lot of meeting new people and everything. So, yeah, I, going back to your question, yeah, I would say that I'm happy to be where I am right now. So, uh, basically meeting people and, you know, getting these contacts and connections is what makes you happy. I wouldn't say just that. I would, I just like the routine. I just like, like the way it's, it's designed, you know, it's, yeah, I mean, it's, it's overall, it's, it's a good, it's a good place to be. I wouldn't say it's just that. I would just say that just the fulfillment and everything, you know, as when, when you close a deal or when things go well. And also the mistakes that you make, you look back and you're like, okay, I could have done things differently, but I wouldn't have been able to learn if I didn't go through that specific mistake, you know, and, and, and there are a lot of them that's happened before and they've not repeated, you know. So, so yeah. So you talked about sort of ups and downs. Do you think business, someone wants to become a businessman or a businesswoman, do you think they would also go through a lot of ups and downs, make a lot of mistakes? in that career yeah i mean you'd be lucky not to if you if you have someone really close to you who can advise you on on how to go around things um but i I personally think like you're destined to make mistakes because that's the only way to grow um yeah having people around you will also push you and support you and, and give you that that push but but yeah i think i think it's it's one of the ways that i've i've grown so, I mean, in every career, there's something that is always, I think the community makes it a really taboo thing to talk about. The money you make, you know, is something that many communities say, don't go and talk about the money you've made, you know, in in your sort of field. Now, on average, not what you make, but on average, what is the pay like for being a businessman or a businesswoman? I mean, I can disclose my figure. I make about $5 million a month. I'm just kidding. I'm kidding. Yeah. I, maybe, hopefully one day, you know. But uh, generally, I don't know. I think they would make, on average, an average businessman would make about $1,000 a month, which would be, okay, let's just say 150,000 shillings going up, you know, if it's a management managerial position. So it can go up till, you know, I don't know, five, six hundred thousand, and then there's CEO salary as well, which can go higher. But again, I'm in Mombasa, so I would say it's it's lower here compared to Nairobi, and I believe the cost of living in Nairobi is higher. So it it depends. But according to me, I think a managerial position, an average starting point, would be hundred and twenty to hundred and fifty thousand. So you mentioned things like you know cost of living. I know right now when we're recording this, there is currently protests going on for lowering the cost of living because of yeah. how high things have been getting. But do you think it's like for the work you do, the amount of work you put in, the hours you do? Do you think it's enough? Is it high enough? Is it good enough? Is it not enough? 
what the cost of living the salary of being a businessman or businesswoman i don't know i understand why people are frustrated but i think people also you know i'm not one to talk much about politics but i think this is a worldwide problem it's not only a kenyan issue you know over the past couple of years a lot of different factors that have really you know played a part into the current situation we're in so yeah i'm not one really to comment on politics but but yeah things are tough and if things are tough for the for the employees what about businesses so it has to go both ways right people have to think both ways and and i know during covid there were a lot of people who took salary cuts you know during covid and which was you know very good thing because it was either you take a salary cut or you out you know so there was some sort of understanding and generally it's it is a very tough per- period right now but there's nothing we can do but just try our best and hope for the best right yeah so you talked about sort of different factors you know as you know, made businesses go through times i think over the past couple of years corona has impacted businesses widely yeah has corona from your understanding impacted maybe businesses that you've seen around your area around your surroundings of course cost of living has gone up imports have gone down well thank god now they're, they're slowly picking up uh but now other factors are also coming in like this protests and everything so people are a bit on people are a bit afraid the dollar rate has also gone really high you know compared to the kenyan shilling so that also plays a part it really it really was a tough time and and we're just hoping that it it gets better now you know we need to really be together as as one and not be divided like the way we're seeing right now in the country because we've seen where that can take people and where, where that can take countries but if we're together if we have one sort of middle ground and understanding then we we can take this country back to where it was pre corona so I want to move into the future you know the the present the future you know so as you've seen and I'm sure as you know as a young guy you've seen AI grow a lot you know artificial intelligence things like ChatGPT coming out you know making students work easier making businesses work easier a fun fact I'll give you this is professionally speaking's name actually came from ChatGPT so oh, oh, I see it's clearly yeah, taking AI. over Yeah so AI has gotten a lot of popularity over the past couple of years and I'm sure it is going to grow you know in the next couple of years or the next couple of decades to come what's your view on it do you think it helps do you think it's bad I don't think it's necessarily a bad thing I use AI myself personally I mean why hire someone to write you something when you can have AI do it for you you know you have to think fast you have to think smart you have to save i mean if chat gpt is something that's free you're not dumb for using ai you're just smart i think you know and a lot of people might disagree with me and and yeah this this can potentially affect a lot of people you know when it comes to freelancing and jobs like writing marketing content and stuff like that but it's where the world's moving you know i don't think uh, unemployment would really be affected maybe a little bit it's it's still too early i think in my opinion to say oh, i i've not really done a lot of research into ai to to make a sort of judgment but i use it i think it's great 
I still think there is some sort of human element that's needed because you don't get a hundred percent accuracy. And for those people who are looking for hundred percent accuracy, then getting someone hiring a, a human would would make more sense, right? Or you can mix and match, and and save on costs as well. Now think about it. You need you need a post written or an email written or something, and you need it written professionally. Uh, get ChatGPT to write it for you. Send it to uh, hire someone to to rephrase it for you and to ensure that it's it's done correctly. That way you're saving on costs and you're spending 50% less and and asking someone to write to to touch something up for you rather than asking them to do it from scratch. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. I mean, for you, you're looking at it from the aspect that you know why maybe hire someone just to write an email. You know, make it professional, grammar, and all. So, I mean, you know, AI, people are saying it's going to take over the world soon, you know. And, I mean, a big part of the world is our jobs, you know. As maybe a student or, you know, the person that teaches me is a teacher. So, you know, their job could be taken over by AI. As a businessman, do you think future businessmen and women will not be needed? Because AI is coming in, AI is growing. Do you fear that? I don't fear. I don't think it's going to happen. I mean, we've seen it with robots. You know, a couple of years ago, they said robots are going to take over. Yeah, I think a few places in China and stuff, like the factories, things have become uh, automated. But there's only so much AI can do. I mean, what can it do for you? It can it can do a bit of your marketing. It can write you a couple of emails. It can it can it can give you pointers before you get into something. But a human element, a human being, is needed because without the deliverance through a human being, AI is not really. It's not. It's it doesn't make sense to use it, right? Because you need a human to deliver it. So, no, I don't think AI would take over. It's just a bonus that is there to help people. But uh, no, I don't think it would be, uh, it would cause people, cause unemployment. So do you think maybe like someone like myself could go and start an, up an entire business using AI? No, you can. You can do the coding bit, like the websites, coding, the app building, all of that. That could uh, possibly help you out and save costs. I think it would make your business easier to, to start up. Uh, in terms of that, you know, but you would still need the manpower. I mean, okay, give me an example. What would you like to start up? So maybe let's say, you know, something like environmental airplanes, you know, you're in the environmental business, an e-plane maybe, for example. An e-plane, I'd love to see that. No, you still need, you would still need humans, right? Who's going to build it for you? You're not going to get AI to build it for you. It'd probably help you out and and if you need a plan made or something, then, you know, in, in any different way, the AI model can do it for you. But again, like like I said, you need the human deliverance to do it. You know, technical bits could could come in through AI, but again, deliverance is, is the main thing. Now, unless you mix AI with robots, that would be something interesting. I haven't really thought of that. I, it just came across my mind now, but... AI and robots linked together, then possibly unemployment. 
So if we were to bring in AI and robots, you fear do you fear that it could take over your career? Not my career, no, but I would say manufacturing careers. Right? People in the factory you know, like I mean we're seeing it now though, right? Uh, Toyota, for example, when they assemble their uh, in in Japan and in China, wherever they do it, if you've seen looked up videos online, you see how everything is done accordingly. So that is robotics. Now, I there might be AI already involved in that. So I'm sure people have lost their jobs because of automation, robotics, and stuff like that. But in my particular field, I don't think that that it would really. I'm more of a guy on the ground speaking to people, you know, selling. So I, I don't I would not see a robot talk to a client and uh, and try and close a deal. Uh, but if it does, then I'm buying the robot and, and walking around with it everywhere. Interesting. I mean, that's something I don't think I've, I would hear someone say that, you know, if the robot could just do it. And, you know, you have an ATM meeting, you just send the robot for that. Maybe 50, 50 to 100 years from now. Um, maybe. If possibly. I'm lucky to live to 124, then maybe I'll see it. Yeah, so, you know, career, being a businessman or a businesswoman is, you know, I've seen a lot of businesses open up, whether it's, you know, in the food industry, you know, the environmental industry, manufacturing industry. Do you think that to get into the career is quite competitive? Do you think it's quite hard to get into the career? As in just a general career? As in... Becoming a businessman or a businesswoman, do you think it's very hard? Do you think it's hard for someone like, let's say, myself, to enter into the business career? So, do you mean being employed or starting your own thing? We can say, let's start. Let's say, if I wanted to start my own thing, so do you think, like, you know, you factor into things like education, uh, things like starting it up, you know, the uh, pros and cons of that. I think it, it really depends on what you want to do, right? Uh, if you see a gap in the market, then it's possibly easier to get in. If you see there is competition as well, it's also a good thing because you know that there is a market for it. So you could possibly get into it. Now, the main thing is education is important. Okay, fine. But I wouldn't say it's the number one thing. I would say your soft, uh, your soft skills, if I'm not mistaken, that's the right word. How well can you speak? How well can you think? You know, can you prioritize the right things? Can you manage things correctly? You know, I think that is very important. And then having the team around you, getting the specialized people. You know, for example, the e-tuk-tuks, electric tuk-tuks I'm doing. Am I getting the right supplier? Am I getting the right um, engineers? Do I have the right salespeople? Those are the things that you need to look into. Yeah, it might be costly, but if you're starting your own thing up, you you would need to take that into consideration. It is possible with with lower investments. It is, and that just depends on how you know strong-minded you are and how positive and confident you are. That can also make a difference. I won't say money is the most important thing, but there are a lot of different factors. You know, like I mentioned, so it's not difficult. It is competitive. I would say that definitely, you know, everyone's trying to get into everything. Like from the time we got into electric tuk-tuks, three other companies have come in as soon as we got in, about a couple of months after. So they saw the gap as well. 
and they also um, tried to exploit it. So we basically opened the doors for them. But when we saw competition, we didn't get scared. We got happy actually because we said we're going to spend less now on marketing. People are going to be more aware of these. Let the competition come in. You know, we're happy. We're strong. We know what our company is. We have that sort of backing. And let them do the work for us. Why do we need to do the work? It's just like AI. You know what I'm. You know what I'm saying. So yeah, yeah. I know what you're saying. I mean, the basically they market it. You know, so yeah. that more people get aware for it. And I think that's. I mean, if you go back maybe around hundred years when cars were maybe just new. No one person had to market that car, and as soon as multiple people got in, everyone knew what a car is. Today, everyone's using right. a car to get around. You know. Yeah, of course, and and a so, lot of my friends would tell me, sorry, a lot of my friends would tell me, you know, you're gonna now there's someone else coming, someone else coming. You know, what are we gonna do? I said, relax. They they're doing the work for us. Take it easy. It's fine. It's gonna be okay, and pe- more people are gonna hear about us. So. Yeah, it's it's an interesting sort of business market that we're in. So you're saying basically we should not be afraid of competition? Uh, to an extent, depending on what you're doing. Uh, in terms of the logistics side, there is a lot of competition. Everyone's trying to slash rates, you know. But I think what we focus on on in our companies is the service delivered. So you can you can pay two hundred dollars for a service. At another company and pay $250 with us but you'd be rest assured that everything we go as planned as mentioned yes everything has a one-off ups and downs but what is you know the after sales what happened how does how is the service you know compared to the other companies and how do we compensate if something goes wrong compared to another company so I, I would pay a bit more money to to make sure that everything goes well versus paying $50 less and, and being unsure or, you know, having that uneasy sort of feeling. So, yeah. So you're speaking, I mean, we've talked about, you know, going back and, you know, how career and how being a businessman has been, you know, there, I think, since ever since. Yeah. So in the future, I mean, you're a young guy. You still hopefully have a long time to live. Do you yeah. Would you stay in your career? hundred percent i mean you never know where life can take you but like i said in the beginning i don't see myself anywhere i don't see myself being a dentist you know i don't see myself being a cook only when i need to cook for my wife at home but uh, I, I i don't i don't see myself do anything else you know so you don't why don't you see yourself doing anything else you know is it maybe this, just because uh, passion? Is it because maybe other passion. careers are harder in being a businessman? That's a very good question. You know, a lot of people say business is the easy way out, but I don't think so. You know, I it's I feel like it's for me it's purely based on passion, right? I, I'm not passionate about being a doctor. I'm not passionate about you know being anything else. Uh, I was passionate at one point about being a pilot. Maybe that's something I could possibly take do in the next 10 to 15 years as as a side sort of hobby but uh, i i don't see myself doing anything else you know interesting i mean you know some people might have a backup plan you know 
Yeah. Okay. Uh, and and if if God forbid this this doesn't go well or if something or the other goes wrong, which I hope it doesn't, then I know that I've learned. I know I have the mindset. I know that business, like I said earlier, is very wide. There's a lot of other things that I could get into potentially. And, you know, having a strong CV is also very important. So, I mean, you know, as, you know, time passes, I mean, of course, people like my generation are going to grow up. I'm sure the current generation, you know, the current 18-year-olds are coming into, you know, uni and wondering what should I do. Is there space, you know, for people to come and find a gap in the market and open up a business? There will always be space. It's where you look for it, you know. You have to think and you have to search. You have to do your research. You know, you can't just come in today and say, I want to start electric buses. Like, dude, you know, there's there's a way, there's research, there's a lot of things that, that you need to do. Think about it, 10 years ago, there was no electric tuk-tuk market. You know, 10 years from now, we don't know what there's going to be. We just need to stay active. We need to keep looking, you know. So there's always going to be space. And not everyone's going to get into it. But people who work hard and who try their best can do it. You know, people who can go the extra mile. And this is like a general thing overall. It doesn't really depend where, you, where you're working. But if you don't work hard, then you can't really expect to be anywhere unless you get lucky, you know. So do you think that working hard is a skill that every single person needs to have if they want to get somewhere in life? Of course, like, unless you get lucky. Uh, but I, I don't think anyone... Uh, anyone gets anywhere without you know working hard i'll give you an example you know there's the whole ronaldo messi debate and a lot of people say that you know messi is a natural and he's he was born to to play well and ronaldo's a hard worker and everything i don't believe that i i think that both messi and ronaldo worked hard to where they they are you know right now it's not only ronaldo who worked hard it's also messi and and so a lot of the times when people say, oh, yeah, Messi is a hard worker, uh, Ronaldo is a hard worker, and Messi just, you know, was born naturally for it. That's not that's not true, in my opinion. I think everyone worked hard. So you're saying that maybe the top business owners, not even only business, I think top celebrities nowadays worked hard. You know, for example, maybe you can say Elon Musk or Mark Zuckerberg. Do you believe that they worked hard to get where they are today? course i mean if you read the stories for example jeff bezos you see where he started i think he started in a small little even mark zuckerberg the way he started i think a lot of nine out of ten people have started with very little and have worked extremely hard or have thought really uh, differently to everyone else to get to where they are now some of it may be luck i mean if you talk about celebrities some celebrities just do silly shit and sorry, excuse my language. Just do silly stuff and and get famous, you know. And and some of us sillyly, if that's a word, follow them and and give them more hype, you know. But generally in the business field, yeah, I think nine, nine out of ten people have worked hard and thought really smart to to get to where they are now. So you have, uh, I mean, a couple of years of experience, and I'm sure you've. You've seen a lot of people get into the business field. What's one piece of advice you would give someone thinking about entering your career? 
come in, the doors are open, you know, work hard, pay close attention to what you learn at university because even one or two points that you learn out of the thousand other points that you, you learn can make a difference. I think it's an unlimited sort of sort of uh, environment. Um, it's, it requires a lot of hard work, it requires a lot of thinking, it requires a lot of strength, you know, because there are a lot of mistakes that one's going to make. So if you have, have one bad day or a couple of bad days and, and make a few mistakes here and there, it's not the end. I would say it's just some sort of learning curve for you. You know, you look back and you say, okay, I made this sort of mistake. How can I reflect? So you reflect and you ask yourself, what can I do better? No, it's, I would say it's it's a beautiful place to be, you know, business. So and I just want to pick there's, up. There's no, sorry, I just want to say there's no failure. So even if you do start your own company or you do start your own business, it doesn't mean it's the end. And it, if, I mean, if it doesn't work, it doesn't mean it's the end. There's always another opportunity. You'll always find something, you know, and you have to be passionate about it. If you have no passion, if you're thinking about surgery, whilst you're doing business, then you're in the wrong field, you know, and it's never too late. Even And, and that's, yeah, that's another thing. You can be 50, 60 years old and, and still get into the business field. You don't have to be 25, 22, 21. You know, you can be any age. So you talked about something that I really liked, reflecting. Do you think in every career it's needed to reflect or not even in a career, in your day-to-day life? Do you think that, you know, 100%. maybe before I go to sleep, I sit on my bed and reflect maybe? Do you think that that's something that people really need to do? Of course, because without reflection, there's not going to be any growth. Right? You make a mistake today. You say something in a business meeting that, for example, that you thought was wrong. So you have to come back. You know, not overthink, but reflect. You know, where can I improve? Where can I better myself? Because if you don't reflect, then where's the growth? Right? So that, I think, is, is very important. I hope you reflect as well, you know. I mean, I try to, you know, on things that maybe may ponder over me. Yeah. But thank you, Ali Jod. Um, that concludes today's episode. Uh, thank you for coming on. And, no problem. I um, hope, I hope, uh, yeah, I hope you got the answers that, that, that you're looking for. I wish you all the best. And I think what you're doing is great. All the best. Keep at it. And if you need any other assistance, I'm, I'm right here. All right. Thank you, Ali Jod. Uh, thank you, viewers, for watching. And we hope to see you soon. Ali Jod, any final words? No. All the best. Again, thank you for having me. And uh, I'll speak to you soon. Yeah, I hope, some, I hope uh, the viewers picked something small, maybe, from... Uh, our quick discussion. Uh, thank you so much for watching. Yeah, please subscribe, comment, like the video, and we are coming out with a new episode very soon. Thank you. Yeah. Episode 4 Destinations Unveiled Navigating the World of a Travel Agent. Let me see. Hello and welcome to Professional Speaking. My name is Rahan Ali Muhammad, your host.
for this career show. With me today, I have a business owner, someone that was someone that started in Mombasa and moved to the capital hub of Kenya, a business market. With me today, I have the owner of R12 Africa. I know in the last episode, we did have a businessman on, but today we don't want to go into business. We want to go into what he is doing. So with me today, I have Rizwan Maudri, a travel agent of a travel agent and business owner. Welcome, Rizwan. Hi, Rehan. How are you doing? Thank you for having me on this. Good Okay, so thank you for doing this. We really appreciate it. And we want to basically start off by getting to know you. Who are you? What are you doing in Kenya? What's your role as you know, a travel agent? Okay, so um, yeah, I've been in Kenya for quite some time, uh, born and bred here. And I've been in, uh, we've been in the tourism industry for for a very long uh, for a very long period of time. I grew up in the tourism industry. Let's put it that way. My family business also is in the tourism business. I moved to Nairobi uh, five years ago, and I opened my own tour travel company called R12 Africa Limited. And yeah, I've been here in Nairobi for quite some time and enjoying the enjoying Nairobi's weather, enjoying Nairobi's lifestyle. Nairobi has got a lot to offer. Yeah, I completely agree with you on that one question. What does R12 Africa stand for? Right, so I've been really fascinated by this number plate uh, concept in, in, in the UK. So in, in the UK, if you want to have a personalized you're going to have two numericals and when I always wanted to have my car registered as R and uh, I for one and two for Z uh, I mean so that's where I thought okay let me get R12 Africa and Africa I mean Africa everybody wants to come to Africa <laughs> and why not so um, I said let's go for it I got it registered it was easy and that's an interesting one. Normally you hear, you know, basically someone you know, just thinks of something, puts two words together. Yeah, it's, you know, a whole another from a whole another continent, you can say. Yep. So I want to go into your education. What did you study in university? Right. So I studied business information systems and business information technology. Uh, when I also did uh, my uh, diploma in tourism, business management. So yeah, I did quite a few of, uh, you know, uh, degree, uh, I mean, courses, but my main, uh, the joint degree was business information and business information technology. So you mentioned about doing a diploma in tourism. Right. Is there a sort of, like, let's say a whole course where, where someone can go and do their undergrad and their master's and their diploma in tourism only? Or is it yeah. like have to be a joint course? Uh, yes, it's possible. It depends on what level you want to reach up to. So you can start off with uh, the normal one. One is a certification. Two is a diploma. The third step would be going to a college and doing a six-month course where you get um, uh, 
a certification that you you, you can get get into hospitality. Um, further to that is then going into university where you do a two year or three year degree program. Um, and then from there, I think it's way beyond. It's up to you how much you want to achieve. So you mentioned about how you studied uh, the joint course and did a few other courses. How long did that take you to achieve it? So uh, I, I standard degree, uh, university degree is about three years. Three years. Uh, and uh, my diploma for tourism was for about three months. Three months. Interesting. I mean, normally, you know, someone like a doctor will take, you know, 10 years just to finally start making money. So, I mean, for anyone that wants to go into sort of tourism, I mean, now you know it doesn't take so long. No. So, why did you become a travel agent? I mean, you know, so many other careers out there, you know, you could have maybe started a business up in something else, you know? Yeah, so, like I said in the initial uh, beginning of the podcast, like we've been in this tourism and travel industry for a very, very long time. My dad, my dad, uh, and his uh, and his brother uh, formed a company, a tour travel company in Mombasa, and I grew up watching them. And uh, whenever I used to meet up with a few uncles, friends, family, and they say, "Yeah, this is your lane. You should concentrate on this lane." And when I moved to Nairobi, I bumped into a lot of people, and they all said, "Yeah, you are." Mauji's son. Yes, we know the family. So yeah, uh, we will not hesitate to give you business so wherever I went. For instance, I went once to Prime Bank, and uh, the manager knew me. He said, "Oh, you're Mauji's son. Uh, we need to go for uh, a staff party. Uh, can you give us a quotation for renting out a Costa?" So you see, one led to the other, and I got more confidence. I got more clientele. So I want to go, I think, something that a lot of maybe my generation and, you know, a few other generations ahead of me are saying is, you know, when someone wants to go into a career, they also want to look at not only money, hours, they want to look at happiness. Are you happy as a sort of tourism company, as the owner of a tourism company? Are you happy with your job? Are you happy every day to wake up? to go, you know, to work? Yeah, I am, because this is uh, this is a family heritage. I have to make sure the, the family uh, name uh, stays in the market. Uh, we, are, we still survive there and we have a name. So in terms of happiness, yes, I, 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 I enjoy traveling. I love discovering new places. Kenya has got so much to offer. And uh, I don't think even there's need to go out, uh, you know. Uh, for instance, I have my friends, they say they're going to honeymoon to Maldives or Spain. Nothing against those countries, but it's just that if you're in Kenya, there's so much to discover. You see, if you want the beach, you can go to Watamu. You can go to Diani. In fact, South Coast was rated one of the top 10 beaches in one of the top 10 beaches. You've got safari. If there's so much to discover, you want to do hike, Kenya's got it. You want to go, uh, you know, like a desert safari. There's everything that Kenya's got to offer. So I think whoever is coming into Kenya next, if you want to go a whole 
I think country safari, you know who to contact. Indeed. You can find him on Instagram at R12Africa. Correct. That's my Instagram handle. Yeah. So I want to look at, you know, your day-to-day life. What makes you, what's your, you know, you're working a nine-to-five. What's your day like, you know, from when you wake up to what by the time you get home? What do you do in that, you know, couple of hours at work? What's you, what does your job look like? Uh, I, 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 be, I start my day off with prayers, obviously, in the morning. I try to get up. Um, I'm, I believe strongly in Robin Sharma's uh, 5 a.m. club. I try to get up at 5 a.m., 5 a.m. Uh, get my prayer in, then go to the gym to keep my mind set uh, and uh, come back home, freshen up, and I'm back at the office. When I'm at the office, I try to, you know, to see what I've got to achieve, what I've got to, to, to conquer. And uh, the day gets really busy because there's so much to be doing. And uh, in our, uh, uh, what we offer is not only safaris, we also do car hire, we do airport transfers, we do safaris. So there's always something or the other happening. You have to make sure the logistics are in place, the cars are checked. The drivers are, you know, well conversed with the routes they are going to be taking. Uh, you know, pager boards have to be printed. So there's a lot of things happening, and it, you know, with the with this tourism industry, also it's it's very demanding. You've got to make sure that you are ahead of the game. So you know, when you've got an airport transfer tomorrow, you have to be prepared. Uh, to make sure that everything is set in line so for the client not to get any inconvenience. So uh, we were talking about factors you know, just a couple of minutes ago about happiness and all. Another factor I believe that many people look at when getting into a career is money. You know, Some people might get into a career just for the money. Some people might get into it for fashion and then you know find the money dragging with them. So on average as a tourism company what's the pay like this is something where you can't set a, a bar or a label that okay i'm going to get this much amount of money uh, it, uh, you see it all depends on on uh, uh, one season two how aggressive you are three what agents you have four how's your marketing um, there's a lot of factors involved to it who do you depend on? So I can't uh, put a set amount that, okay, you're going to make a million dollars every month. And so this is the industry to go into. Um, I think every every industry has its uh, its uh, plus and minus. So it, again, depends on what, what, uh, what you concentrate on. So if you're going to concentrate on here on... Um, car hire, you're going to concentrate on airport transfers, or you're going to do safaris only. So that's, that's a different way to look at it. And you can say, okay, this is what you're looking at. But uh, for us, we, we're doing a lot of things uh, in, uh, in the transport industry, like I mentioned, Air, uh, safaris, airport transfers, car hire, uh, and so forth. So there's no set amount. Okay, so you know, I think I want to move into a bit of the future here. I mean, okay. you know, a couple of AI has grown, you know, right. a lot over the past couple of years. Yes. What do you 
what's your view on it you know do you are you pro ai are you not ai you want to elaborate how what do you mean by ai in in so the in our sector yes i understand artificial yeah so do you believe in it do you think that it's a good tool a bad tool Oh I absolutely personally if you tell me artificial AI has been the best thing that has ever happened I'm trying to be very uh, optimistic and positive about it uh, it's made things easier uh, even when you have got your speeches to make your your presentations you know you want to make things easier uh, you know you but the only drawback is i understand that the world is having a challenge with is uh, is uh, with the school children you know if they are going to do their homework are they going to use their their thinking capacity to actually compile a composition because i understand with the ai all you need to do is just type in your your composition topic and <laughs> and your entire composition is done for you so that's another another uh, topic of discussion with uh, you know with the parents and teachers and uh, how it's going to influence but in terms of ai yes i think it's made life easier you want to find out something if you want to achieve a goal you just go on to ai and ask Uh, yeah I, I, like i said everything has its pros and cons but yeah i, I think uh, ai has done wonders and it's high time we moved on we take advantage of technology because i believe in technology as well in it's a good view i mean it's going to take over the world you know we need to embrace it yes yes it has its pros and cons and if it's controlled well and managed well i think it's it's a beautiful thing yeah and i understand everybody is still uh, you know taking ai further and further trying to discover but uh, all in all i think uh, yeah it's it, 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 it's a good thing that's been out there i think personally i believe that everything has its pros and cons you know Correct. once Correct. you take it out of certain limit you know yes. you reach the cons so Indeed. you know speaking of ai do you fear that you know someone in the future can start up a business or a tourism agency completely with ai but uh, yeah it's possible you can do uh, you can do uh, you can use ai for tourism industry um you can um, you know ai is such such an amazing tool like i said that uh, uh, it it can do wonders for you anything you want to do uh, related to the tourism say you want to find out where is the best destination what to pack for yourself when you're going for a tour or for a holiday so yeah i mean it's it's amazing even if you want to start up a uh, uh, not only a tourism business any business is going to ai and ask ai that i need to start this what are the you know prerequisites what do i have to do so yes i feel ai is wonderful do you fear that ai could maybe take over your job in the in maybe not the near future but sometime in the future do you fear that you know, maybe there'll be r12 africa but rizwan mauji will be sitting at home and ai and ai will be doing all the work that would be fantastic if you got to see it from a positive point of view you don't have to do much of work that gives me more time to go to the gym to work out enjoy the leisure time as well so <laughs> um yeah i mean if it can do all my itinerary it can do all my filing and all my accounting and all my speeches to the drivers and stuff and like why not <laughs> so yeah
like I said, I believe in technology and I, I, I embrace it uh, wholeheartedly. I, in fact, I, I, I love technology. So, yeah, let's see what AI can take us up to. So I want to move a bit back into the present. You know, right now you're maybe one of uh, your a very known tourism agency in you know Nairobi. Is the career competitive? Do you see that you know your competitors are they growing? Are they decreasing? I think uh, competitors. Uh, you have to look at it with a different eye, with a different point. Uh, I try not to look at it as competitors. Uh, I work with a lot of uh, tour operators and we have a pool. So at times, uh, you know, they may not have enough cars. They may need to subcontract. So they would come to us and we would give them out. Or I may not have enough cars. I need to subcontract. So I try and work out. In terms of um, you know, trying to see them as competing as number of clientele or number of sales. I think that also depends. That depends on you and your organization. How how you do your sales, what you have to offer, um, what lengths you go out to. So uh, I I also believe that every uh, tour operator has something different to offer. And uh, like I said, this the tourism industry is so vast that you could be, say, concentrating, say, selling only Watamu because of the beach. So you would you target clients selling only Watamu beach. So you would have maybe uh, target have selling safaris only. Or maybe you want to sell Masai Mara only. You don't want to sell the other national parks. Or you want to do airport transfers only, you want to do car hire. So again, it depends on each and every individual who owns their touring company. So let's say someone that you know is maybe 18, 19, wants to start up their business in the tourism agent. Do you think they'll find it sort of tough to you know get into it? I'll say something, Rehan. Uh, what I would give an advice uh, is that before anybody starts any business, I, I would highly recommend is go out there and uh, get a job first. Work in that industry. First, understand that industry. Is this industry, industry right for you? Are you willing to go that extra mile? See what are the, the, you know, the requirements for that industry. Then make up your mind. Just don't jump into uh, a business, opening a business. Oh, okay, I'm, you know, I'm quite fascinated with this travel industry, and I love traveling, so I'm going to open a travel industry. <laughs> it doesn't work like that. Um, you need to do. You need to find out. Um, then you go and open your business. A lot of uh, um, uh, factors are involved in this. For instance, the financial capability. Are you strong enough? You may get a scenario where you get uh, clients walking in and say, okay, I want to uh, purchase tickets to go to Hollywood. Can you offer me a package? And say the package is $10,000, hypothetically speaking. Do you have the financial capability to pay the $10,000 upfront whilst your client is organizing or sending you the payment? Now, are you you know are you going to brush off all your clients? Tell no, no, I need the money first. So these are the factors you need to consider. You need to know have the knowledge, which is very important. You need to know what you're selling. Uh, you need to have the experience. You need to 
have been traveled you need to have understanding what are the requirements you need to understand the travel industry itself so i would say don't rush uh, you never know maybe it's not your cup of tea and maybe there's something else better in store for you i'm not discouraging or i'm not you know i'm just trying to highlight that it's very very essential to learn what you want to enter first not to rush interesting i mean you know normally some people have their mind set on something you know they want to do it want to do it and then, you know they find out that you know maybe it's not for them yeah it's fine if you want to do it but i would just say don't rush into it you just need to make sure that you know you know it well don't don't plunge in fast especially now with this diff, with this day and age everything is working differently before you see with the tourism and travel industry you would literally have a shop you like oh i know that corner shop the travel shop you would go there you would walk into that you would pay hard cash you know book your safari no those days are gone so every time there is a change uh, that's why i said it's very important to understand the industry you're going it not necessarily the tourism travel industry any industry for anyone who is watching and wants to learn or is you know embarking into a career uh, time uh, take your time first go work get uh, get a job you know understand the industry you may discover that wow um, you know traveling is just too chaotic or it's too demanding or wow it's fun it's interesting i'm in for it So yeah, you you know you need to to be very careful. So you as a maybe tourism agent or tourism company, would you maybe in the next 20 years would we still find you running R12 Africa? Uh I'm I'm going to try and make sure that I can run it by myself as much as i can because of the heritage needs so that's very important uh yeah and uh, i do want to make sure that we stay in the market and we are always there but uh, in terms of uh, managing it depends again like you said you offered me ai so let's see what ai has got to offer us <laughs> um yeah i i will we would love to stay in the market and continue uh, supplying uh, all our client current existing client you know many options and travel packages which are still out there i have many clientele who still want to go out to different places so i don't think yeah i would want to take a back seat do you think maybe you know for younger generations that maybe you know have had experience maybe gone got an job on the tourism is for them do you think this space in you know the tourism field or the tourism group do you think this space for more people to come and enter the field so tourism is 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 very vast you know you could in tourism you could be a tour operator you could be a tour leader see for instance you could be at uh, you could be set for example in uh, malindi which is you know the northern side of mombasa and if whenever you've got clients you want to send them out to there so the agents would look for you and you would then uh, you know take the clientele and show them what malindi has got to offer you make sure that you know they are welcomed well their accommodation is is there and you you know you make sure that um, their stay is entertaining you have entertainment ready for them and so forth again and then you can have you could be a, 
tour driver guide so you'll be driving your tourists so there are a lot of fields subfields under the tourism industry you could be even um, a chef for the in a in a hotel that entertains all tourists so you want to make sure that every time you have a different cuisine for them times maybe you have um, say Chinese clients who come in so you're going to make sure something that is you know you have the Chinese delicacy ready or the Indian delicacy ready so there's a lot of fields in the tourism industry that you can look into you know so generally let's look at you know the whole tourism industry do you think there's still space for people to join in, you know, as chefs, um, you know, tour guides? Do you think there's still space for people to come in and be part? Yeah, every industry has got a lot of space. It depends on how you look at it. Uh, yes, uh, there is a lot of opportunity, not only here in Kenya, even outside Kenya. Um, and uh, it depends on how you, you, you look at it, you want to, like I said initially. Whether you want to provide car hire, you want to provide safaris, you want to be an inbound agent, you want to be an outbound agent, you want to be a tour leader, you want to be a driver guide. Uh, there's a lot of there's a lot of job vacancy in a lot of job departments. Uh, there's a lot of there's there's a lot of vacancy. I would say it depends now where you want to fit yourself into. Like I said, first uh, you know explore and then jump into it. So I think the final question that we would have today is what's one piece of advice you would give someone thinking about entering the tourism industry? Well, I think I almost gave it in in the beginning or sometime in between. Like I said, just don't rush to get into the tourism industry. First you explore it. Uh, and then you get into it. You must enjoy your field. So if you're going to get into the tourism industry, make sure that you learn the industry well. And when you're selling it, sell it passionately. So, and make sure that you know uh, you do not uh, compromise on your qualities. So say if you're going to say that I'm going to give you a package worth two hundred dollars state clearly what you're going to offer and make sure that you give it in and uh, you know don't uh, don't get carried away you know with uh, uh, your uh, your uh, competitors just focus on what you want to do and uh, yeah the the growth is is up to you how aggressive you are or if you want to partner up with somebody, it's, it's, it's entirely up to you. So yeah, um, just be focused and uh, make sure you know what you're doing. All right, thank you Rizwan for coming on here. You can check him out on Instagram at r12africa. He also has a YouTube channel, Rizwan Mauji, so you can also check him out there on all his trips. And if you are planning a trip to Kenya, then do check him out. And yeah, thank you so much. We really appreciate it. Any last words? I would like to say once again, thank you for giving me this opportunity for coming on your podcast and I'm wishing you all the best. And uh, if any of these cli uh, clients or friends of yours are you know, watching and would like to come in for a safari or airport transfer or car hire, please give me a shout and we'll make sure that uh, you know, you're well taken care of. 
So yeah, thank you very much. Do check out our Instagram page and YouTube. Please do give us a follow and subscribe to us. Thank you very much for watching. We hope you enjoyed and you could pick up something from this. Once again, thank you, Rizwan. And from that, from me and Rizwan, we're out. Episode 5 Brushes and Beauty, The Creative Journey of Makeup Artists Hello and welcome to Professionally Speaking. My name is Rahan Ali Muhammad, your host for today. And today we want to dive into, I think, a passion that many women have, I think, from a young age. Uh, being a makeup artist, I know a lot of women use makeup, they, you know, and I think some people have always wanted to, you know, do it on other people, you know, make it a career. So with me today, I have Rupa Kathri, a makeup artist here based in Nairobi, Kenya. And yeah, welcome Rupa. Hi Rahan, thanks for having me on here. Yeah, no, thank you. So first, I mean, I just want to ask you to maybe like give an introduction about yourself or your education what did you do and then yeah we can start from there okay so i've actually been a practicing hair and makeup artist in nairobi for i think maybe the last seven or so years my educational background actually has absolutely nothing to do with makeup artistry i actually have a degree in marketing and international business and makeup artistry is just uh, a passion and i don't actually have any um, traditional qualifications, so to speak, in the makeup uh, scene. Um, I am entirely self-taught on that. So, yeah, that's a little bit about my educational background. So, I mean, you mentioned that you don't have sort of maybe a degree, as maybe people would say, in makeup artist. Mm -hmm. Is there, like, let's say, if someone wants to become a makeup artist today, do they... Is there maybe courses they can take, a university that maybe they can go to? There's lots and lots and lots of available courses. Um, there's very many options, but it's not exactly a requirement for this industry. Some of the best makeup artists that I know and the most talented are actually um, self-taught. So I think it's more of it's more of a passion and an art than something that you can actually learn. If you don't have it, you don't have it in you. And if you have it, you have it. I feel like it's one of those things. So for you, you feel that, you know, to become a makeup artist, you need to have passion. It's not something that can be taught. Right. So I want to move in basically to words like, you know, the, how long did it take for you to be a self-taught or makeup artist? You know, I can't exactly give you an exact time frame, considering makeup has been something that I've been super passionate about. And I've always loved makeup and dressing up and everything from a very, very young age, probably from the time I was like five years old. And, you know, watching my mom get ready every day. And like, I just sort of had that um, passion towards it from that age. And then as I grew up, I, I was always like, oh, I want to wear makeup. I want to wear makeup. And, you know, it's, that's just sort of how it started. And even I can't exactly pinpoint a particular point where I was like, OK, I want to do this um, professionally. So I want to start preparing. It was sort of like an overnight decision for me because I would often do um, my friend's makeup if we're going out or something like that. And um, 
from there suddenly one day I was just like you know what I'm actually really good at this and I should actually pursue this and see where it goes and you know what worked out well for me <laughs> so it was pretty much like an overnight decision for me so there's no sort of educational background or basically you just like I mean I would my education for it started literally when i was 5 because i've been into it probably since the age of 5 so i started picking up little 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 things not realizing um how much i was sort of you know absorbing and it was more of just like oh i just want to dress up and i just want to look a certain way and i want to do this and i want to do that and then you know eventually i just realized i know so much about it and i can actually apply it not only on myself but on others so I mean if I'm not mistaken you have done courses on teaching other people how to you know, do makeup and mm-hmm. all generally let's say from a beginner's level how long would it take to maybe get to maybe not your stage but someone that can professionally do it so for the courses that I personally teach I actually teach more self application as compared to professional courses but the professional courses that I do offer is literally just a week Um so it's a week and then after that you just have to practice 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 practice. So I can only teach you for so long because there's only a, a certain amount of things that I can explain to you after which you sort of have to learn a way to apply it yourself. And within a week you can cover that um a week two weeks you know depending on how quick or how slow you may learn. And then after that you just have to practice practice practice. If you're an absolute beginner you would need at least um at least a good 2 months of serious practice to be able to you know do a somewhat decent job so i mean let's say to put it on a timeline you could say maybe around 6 months to a year 3 mm, to 6 months 3 to 6 months three to of six good months, practice right. is i think enough if if you're serious about it if you're just going to you know um do it just as a by the way or you know you're not serious about it then even 2 years in and you still will be going absolutely nowhere so i i think what i'm getting from you know what you're saying is you really need to be so focused and passionate about getting into it exactly because you know it's not uh, a typical 9 to 5 where you're like okay i'm going to wake up um at a certain time at 9 o'clock i'm at the office and 5 o'clock i'm out it's not like that it's you know it's early mornings it's weekends it's um not only just the actual part where you're with your client it's a lot of clean up behind the scenes it's a lot of rearranging your kit it's a lot of making sure everything is um a certain way behind the scenes before you get to your client and it does take over a lot of your your time it takes over a lot of your life so if if you're if you're not ready to like put that in then you know it's not for you so I want to ask you why did you become a makeup artist? I mean, you know there's so many other careers out there. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, you can become a doctor, you know, a pilot, whatever, but why makeup artist? I think when I realized that uh, there's actually quite a big rather at that time there was quite a big gap in the market was around the time my sister got married and we really struggled to find um you know a decent makeup artist at the time and uh, we came across a couple and then during the actual event you know we had a few issues here and there where you know timelines were not met and um, my sister wasn't like as satisfied as you know she expected to be or sort of and then when i sort of saw the work that was 
that was being provided, I was like, you know what? Like, I can't believe this is something that we're actually paying this money for because I'm actually not qualified at this point and I can do a better job than this. And I think I sort of sort of started thinking of it about about it as like, you know, a potential profession when I saw that. So I was like, you know what, there's actually there's actually some potential here. And then after that, like I would notice when I would do my friends makeup and whatever, that I actually did a really good job. So I'm like, why why am I not pursuing this? Because this is something that makes me so happy and I can actually pursue it in a way that, you know, I can reach more people and it can also uh, be a profession. So, I mean, you talked about, you know, sort of, you know, your sister's wedding and being good at it and friends. I wanted to ask, did you have maybe a plan before becoming a makeup artist? Because, I mean, in your education, you pursued in marketing. So was your maybe your plan before you found out that you're really good at makeup you know, to go and market somewhere for a company or something? So makeup artistry is not my full-time job. Um, I do work with my family as well. So that was always something that I was going to do anyway. So that's sort of why I pursued the marketing and international business uh, degree, because that's something that I did plan on applying at work, um, at the office, the traditional work, which I still do apply. So, yeah. So your degree still does help you till now? It helps me to a certain extent because I, I qualified, I think, about a good 10 years ago. So um, having graduated like 10 years ago, marketing 10 years ago and marketing today, I mean, it's two very different things. So some of the things that we learned may still apply slightly, but the fact of the matter is that marketing has changed so severely the world has changed so much in the last 10 years that there's not a lot of that that can still apply in today's world so i feel like what i learn on the job is a lot more helpful than what i personally learned in a classroom i i mean it's you know your life is you know a whole story you know <laughs> like you know you started off you know going into marketing and then you ended up on you know I'm a makeup artist, so it's a really interesting sort of story. Yeah. So I wanted to ask, are you happy with your career? Are you happy being a makeup artist? Are you happy, you know, spending time going to people's houses at events and all? Yeah, no, definitely. I definitely would say I'm happy for me because it's uh, it's more of a passion than anything else. Uh, I find it very fulfilling. I feel like, you know, when you work with a bride and... Um, at the end of the day when they're so happy and you know you're you're sort of a part of everyone's special day and I, I really enjoy that like you meet so many amazing people you make fantastic connections you build friendships relationships and yeah I personally really enjoy it and you know when you work with nice people the appreciation that they have for your work at the end of it is is worth it for me more than anything else so I want to go into something that I mean I think many people consider or may consider when getting into a career is pay. You know, on average, what does makeup artists maybe around the globe or in Kenya get paid? So this varies so severely from person to person. You have makeup artists here that will provide a service for, say, 2,000 shillings. You have others that will provide it for six or 7,000 shillings. Others that will provide it for 20,000. So it sort of depends on where you want to place yourself on the spectrum, what your sort of target market is, you know, what sort of products you're using. The Kenyan market doesn't quite 
pay what um, I'd say the service is worth, especially like I'd say for myself, because my my products are of fantastic quality. So naturally, they're not cheap. My kit is is huge. It's extensive. I mean, there's I don't think there's anything you can't find in it. Everything under the sun you will find in my kit. I will literally rock up to an appointment with six bags. So, you know, sometimes I feel like it may not be financially. It doesn't always make sense financially in this part of the world. There's other parts of the world, like in the UK, you can charge up to, you know, 500 pounds, a thousand pounds. Some people even go up to 1500 pounds for a bridal makeup. Whereas here you would sort of, you know, be at around the 20,000 to 30,000 um, mark for bridal hair and makeup, which it may sound a lot when you hear it like this, but when you sort of take into account everything that you have spent to firstly be there, your fuel, your time, everything, um, at the end of the day, it's not, I wouldn't say it's a very financially lucrative profession at this point. Like, it's enough to sustain yourself, but it may not be enough to sustain a family, if that makes sense. Yeah, I get what you're saying. That's why most uh, I mean, makeup artists around here, you will find, are are all part-time makeup artists like myself. Like it's more of a passion and a hobby for myself. And my main focus and my, you know, main career is um, my traditional nine to five. And this is more of a passion and a hobby, but still generates a decent income. So you mentioned about, you know, having another sort of job. Do you think that if someone you know, what you get into the makeup industry in maybe Kenya, for example, do you think they would also need to have another job to be maybe financially stable? I think definitely you would need something else. The other thing also with makeup artistry is the fact that it is highly, highly seasonal. So like around this time of year, it's super busy, which is why, I mean, it's 8 p.m., 8.30 rather, and I look like I'm ready to go to bed because I really am, because that's just what this time of year is like. It's crazy, it's hectic, you know, you're you're working long days, you're, you're just constantly busy. And then probably from around mid-September, you know, you'll find your calendar is quite empty up until early November. So for for that moment, you obviously need something else, which is a lot more constant so that you can sort of know that, OK, X amount is coming in and you can't just be sitting around waiting that, oh, let's see if if, if a booking comes in, because honestly, you know, that's just uh, <laughs> it's not a nice place to be. Yeah. And I think even the high cost of living has exactly. also affected that. So, I mean, you know, as we talk about basically uh, what you know your how life is now being a makeup artist or move a bit into the future i mean you know we all know about artificial intelligence chat gpt you know robots and all do you what's your view on it um in this industry for the foreseeable future i mean i don't really think it uh, it plays too much of a part because the service that we're providing is so personalized um and it's such a you know, it's 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 a very one-on-one. -on -one. Um, you're very you're interacting very closely with your clients. So at this point, I don't see it being um, much of an issue. Um, maybe, you know, in the further ahead future, possibly. I mean, maybe you can just hire a robot to do your makeup instead. But I, I think it's it's still a long way until 
it can be widely available enough and also affordable enough for people to choose that as compared to this. And you know the the, the human interaction that comes be between your 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 makeup artist and your bride on the day is also it's also quite an important interaction because you know you play you play more than just the person you know decking up the bride you know you help calm them down you put them in a better mood if there's other little little things that may come up like sometimes you may even find yourself like helping the bride put on her shoe because her outfit is so huge and there's no way she can bend to actually you know close her shoe so you're there helping her put on her shoe so you know I feel like that's that's something that I mean I don't think AI is going to be doing anytime soon so I mean do you fear that AI maybe could take your job in you know like you know in the future I mean if it's like 20 years down the line I probably don't even think I'll be doing this anymore so <laughs> I'm not worried about it Okay, interesting. I mean, I've heard a lot of people say, you know, AI is going to take over the world, robots are going to come do everything for mm -hmm. us. But I mean, make artists, what if maybe, you know, they open up a salon where you just go, you walk in, sit in a chair, you, know, you just choose from your phone what you want and then the robot just does it for you. I just don't see that happening in the near future. And even if it happens, I don't see it being affordable enough for it to be widely available, especially not in this market for a very long time and especially not in this part of the world for a long time. So, I mean, you know, many people have had that passion. I mean, you're one of them to become a makeup artist. So when you were maybe joining the, maybe joining, you know, the field, was it, is it competitive? You know, is it very hard to get into it? So the point at which I got into this, which was a long time ago, um, there was a huge gap in the market and what I was bringing to the market at that point, not a lot of people were. Now a lot of people are. Uh, a lot of people obviously see that there's room in the market and then they want to like jump right in. And as a result of that, it is a very saturated market. There is a lot of competition, but I feel like everyone has a personal touch to offer. Like we all like have our own little unique style and um, a client will come to you based off of that and they will like the uniqueness that you're offering and they'll come for that and they may like something someone else is offering and they'll go to them for that so I feel like as much as it is a very saturated market it is a very compa uh, competitive market today but um, I feel like there's still room for everyone so you mentioned you know people having their own uniqueness is it like you know maybe like let's say if you're called for a bridal makeup does this like happen where maybe you'll be called for the makeup and someone else will be called for the hair? Yeah, yeah. That happens all the time. So it's not so it's not something like where maybe you're only called for bridal for the makeup and the hair as per se. No, no. It's entirely up to the client. If they want me to do both, I'm happy to. If they prefer somebody else doing the hair, that's perfectly fine and I'll focus on makeup. I actually prefer focusing on just makeup. So I actually don't do hair only bookings anyways because hair is not my forte, makeup is. So yeah. So you mentioned earlier about like 20 years down the line you might not be in the career. Mm -hmm. Would you stay in the career, you know? Probably not um, at that point. I may stay on in the form of 
a teacher. I may teach others. I may do the one-off here and there, but I just don't think at that point it's something that I would be able to do because physically it's very, very taxing. It's very exhausting. You find yourself constantly tired physically as a result of it. And, you know, at this point, my life is in a place where, I mean, I have the, the luxury to be able to do this. I have the luxury to, you know, leave the house at like six in the morning, not worry about what's happening, come back whenever I finish my bookings, not have to worry about, you know, any other like domestic responsibilities, so to speak. Um, but at that point in life, maybe I'd have to worry about those things. And also physically, I don't think I would be able to like keep this up because I mean, even at this point, you'll find days where I'm like, oh my God, my back is really hurting. So I'm thinking 10 years down the line or 15 years down the line, I don't think my body can hack it any longer because it is very, very, very taxing. So you mentioned um, about maybe like it being very tiring and draining. Do you think people, you know, mothers, families that are, you know, running families, do you think they are able to maybe, you know, get into the field? You know, I, lot, I know a lot of people who are mothers and um still manage to do this and I really really admire because I I don't know how I don't know how they do it they do do it they may not do it as often as I do or as much as I do I know they're a lot more selective with their hours because of um, other commitments but you know what like I don't know how they do it they do it there's a few that do and hats off to them so and also you also mentioned that you know you are able to leave at 6 a.m in the morning mm -hmm. As we know, in Kenya, they are currently ongoing protests for high cost of living. Has that maybe affected you uh, as a makeup artist, maybe going out to customers in terms of safety and all? So I have had the odd one or two cancellation um, because of the current protests, um, but that's about it because mostly my work is more so Friday, Saturday, Sunday. The weeks are not so busy, but also most of my clients are around Westlands and um, my travel is not too much to them around Westlands, Parklands, so we can still manage. The one or two clients that have had to cancel have been clients that are like probably, you know, on Slavington sides or Hurlingham sides and then they'd have to come across. So for safety, they've actually canceled, um, but it hasn't happened often, but it has happened. And yeah, hopefully things settle down soon, because if not, then it's probably bound to happen more. And also because makeup artistry, I mean, definitely qualifies as a luxury. If things keep going this way, then it is one of the things that people, I think, would cut back on before they would think of cutting back on other things, because it, it's, it's far from a necessity. You know, having your makeup done is not a necessity. So... You mentioned about how, you know, it's like a struggle and all, you know, for people, you know, cancelling and all due to maybe living far and of course for safety concerns. Does maybe cancelling and booking, you know, really last minute, does that affect you as a makeup artist? Oh, yeah, it definitely does. So in a normal situation, I actually normally have a contract which has a cancellation policy, which states very clearly that if you cancel, your deposit is non-refundable. And if you cancel last minute, then most certainly you're still going to be charged for the whole appointment, even though you're 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 not really getting the service. But as a last minute cancellation, because I have blocked off that slot for you for a long time and um, declined that slot to a lot of other interested parties, then definitely, yeah, you're going to have to like you know, 
either lose your deposit or pay the full amount. But in a situation like where we've had the protests and someone's had to cancel, then I mean, you know, it's just about being understanding because it's it's nobody's fault. So over there, you're just like, you know what? It is what it is. Then you still won't refund a deposit, but you will uh, be able to consume that amount at a later date. So you know, you talked about cancellations. Does last minute bookings even affect you? Last minute bookings coming in. Yeah. So like, let's say if someone maybe would, as per se, maybe want makeup for tomorrow. Um. Does I don't usually you? do very last minute because of scheduling purposes. If I'm if I'm available and my day schedule at the office and stuff allows me to take them in um, last minute, then I'm happy to do so. But generally, I do need at least a couple of days notice so I'm able to like plan my day accordingly, and that usually works out well because no one's event is going to just happen last minute. You know what I mean? They will at least know a little bit in advance that X Y Z is happening, and I may need a certain service for that. So you also talked about having a contract that you and uh, the client uh, maybe would go over and sign. Do other makeup artists have this contract? I know a lot of people have now started doing that. I actually have a lot of friends uh, in the industry that I have also encouraged to start doing this because um, sometimes people when there's there's not like a contract put into place and a deposit paid, people may Sometimes it's misunderstanding, sometimes it's just a disregard to your time, and then they'll just cancel last minute because they're not losing anything. So now I think majority of the people in the industry do put into place some sort of a contract and deposit system. So you mentioned, you know, people, you know, a big group of people in the industry. Now, you know, uh, you know, teenagers may be wanting to get into this uh, feel, you know, being a makeup artist and all. Do you think there's space for people to join? Oh, definitely. There's there's always space in in everything. There's always space. Um, as long as you're willing to put in the work, then there's always space. Okay. So the final question I think for today is, what's one piece of advice you would give someone that wants to enter a career or that wants to enter become a makeup artist hmm. one piece of advice I would give them only do it if you're ready to really put in the work and do it if it brings you happiness don't do it because don't do it for the money because then you're going to be disappointed do it if you know it's something that you genuinely enjoy and if if, if it gives you that sense of fulfillment then do it otherwise it's not for you because it's it's not as rosy as it looks on Instagram. <laughs> it's 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 a whole different ball game. Yeah, I mean, I think that's uh, a good thing. You know, I think that counts for everywhere. I mean, Instagram is a place that everything can so, look so rosy, yeah. and, you know, all that. But you know, in real life, they you know, it's a completely different image. Yeah. So, yeah. I think you've experienced that a lot. I think maybe some of your clients may have gone through fake makeup pages, you know, getting scammed. And is that a problem in, you know, the makeup artist industry? Not exactly fake pages. Maybe maybe people have experienced that as well. I'm not aware of that. But fake work in the sense a, an artist has put up a picture that is so ridiculously edited that it's it's physically impossible to attain that level of perfection in reality. 
because it doesn't exist. So that's something that's happened to a lot of people where they'll look at a picture and they'll be like, oh my God, I want to go there because it looks amazing or whatever. And then when they go, it's something completely different. And sometimes people actually will post pictures that are not their work as well. So I guess, yeah, that is just fake and misleading. So yeah, people have had that experience. And um, at least, you know, when, when you're going to someone that's trusted, you know that that's not going to happen. So have you faced maybe makeup artists maybe stealing your work and reposting it? Oh, I've had makeup artists steal steal my work. I've had makeup artists makeup artists claim they've been taught by me. I've had makeup artists entirely steal my style, steal my concepts, steal everything. Honestly, my creativity. I've seen it all. Because um, you know what? At the end of the day, if I'm gonna hide my work, then people aren't gonna get to see it. If I put my work out there everyone can see it and if everyone can see it someone or the other is going to you know steal i've had other makeup artists even have me do their makeup just to see what i am doing what i'm using how i'm doing it and obviously this was at the beginning of my career and i was very young and i didn't i didn't quite realize that that's what was happening and then by the time i realized it was way too late and i can till today see in her work a reflection of my personal style and touch and everything but you know what it is what it is like i said there's there's room for everyone <laughs> all right thank you rupa so much for you know taking the time out of your busy schedule to join us today no problem yeah so you can just put her on make ads makeup and me on instagram and thank you all for watching i hope you picked up something maybe learned something about makeup artist industry and yeah thank you for watching uh, please do subscribe and follow us on all our social media platforms and yeah thank you very much see you soon episode 6 educators echo inside the life of a teacher Hello, good morning, good afternoon, and good evening. Welcome to Professionally Speaking. My name is Rohan Ali Muhammad, your host and career exploration guide. With me today, I have a very important person that has helped me a lot. My teacher, an English teacher actually, who's currently living in Colombia, South America, who's taught me English for my first year in primary school. With me today, I have Mr. Sami, yeah, who was a teacher in Nairobi, Kenya, but moved away. Mr. Sami, good evening. How are you? Yeah. Well, I'd say good evening to you. Um, it's good morning on my end. <laughs> yeah. How are you, um, Rehan? Nice to meet you. Thank you. Yeah. So, Mr. Sami, thank you very much for doing this. I really appreciate it. So, I want to sort of dive in, you know, already start. How you know how's it, how's it teaching you know how's it being a teacher well um well being a teacher is is pretty much an, an interesting career actually i find it i find it interesting because it's one of those things that i wouldn't really say i found myself into but yeah it was pretty much something like that just like probably most of you or most young guys today i had a i had parents who were 
totally focused in leading me into different career paths. I, I think at some point I explored uh, medicine, uh, at some point I explored law, at some point I thought about journalism, and then, well, somehow the world just conspired and I found myself doing a course in um, education arts, in English and literature, and that's how I found myself teaching. But then the thing is, as soon as I started doing it, then I kind of discovered probably it's actually the best thing for me because I have enjoyed it all along. You know, all the opportunity to meet different, you know, students with different personalities, um, individual differences and the ability to just be able to teach them, influence them and um, shape uh, yeah, shape the future is just something that has been exciting for me. So I enjoy this experience and I have seen massive growth as a teacher. Sometimes I sit back and reflect and I'm like, yeah, I, I, I don't think I would have made a better doctor or I would have made a better lawyer. This is just for me. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I want to go basically into your education. What did you study? You know, how did it all get there? Is it like right now as a student you know you can be my teacher and then you know can i say like oh you know mr sammy taught me can i just go you know just go and teach other people yeah <laughs> all right that's a, that's an interesting question yeah just like i said i think i i grew up in an era where most of us did n not think about being teachers i i remember ever being in class and well, I can't remember any single time where I was in class with my stu um, with my um, classmates in in high school, and any anybody came and asked us how many here want to be teachers, and anyone raised their hand. That never happened. Uh, we we had people coming to talk to us about careers, and all we had were like um, engineers, we had medics, we had um, pilots, and really teaching was not that one thing that anyone pretty much I'm um, thought about. I mean, we were horrible students, so you are uh, causing trouble to teachers. <laughs> so you wouldn't imagine being the teacher who's, you know, having to deal with all that stuff from students. But for me, after high school, I, well, in high school, I, I was actually an A student, so I managed to get an A minus in my KCC, um, which is pretty much a grade that would have allowed me to do it pretty much lots of courses I could have done um, law for example I qualified for it merited for it I I could have done um, nursing because I kind of harbored that ambition to be a medic in in a way but yeah for some reason when it came to subject selections I was like yeah my top performing subjects were languages that was English and Kiswahili and I was like yeah this is something that I want to do something about and um, most importantly I was kind of very interested in drama and theater arts and so when I was looking at my options of what I could study I was thinking about what is it that would allow me to kind of take that line you know and it was that very sneaky line because it's something that my um, parents then <laughs> did not really understand what opportunities um, were in the field so in my process of research I kind of noticed okay so there's this course um, that is education arts in English and literature and then when I look at the units being offered rather the courses being offered um, there were some um, there's some units in theater and drama that I'm like yeah this is what I'm gonna do I'm gonna be very sneaky about it but that's what I'm gonna do so I chose that 
and that is how I ended up at University of Nairobi um, studying Bachelor of Education Arts in English and Literature. Somewhere behind um, the scenes I was really looking forward to the drama and theatre courses and that was my journey. Um, I ended up majoring in literature and then usually somewhere in between the course here in third, third year you are required to do your teaching practice that it's, it's pretty much like internship here so for me that was a time i thought about looking for an international school and it was a really huge gamble for me because i didn't know so much about international schools then it's just something that i had about when i went to high school you know to sorry to uni I'm like oh so there are schools like these that exist somewhere in Kenya I'm like okay then if that that's the case that's where I want to teach you know and I looked around looked for you know um, several schools I, I didn't get accepted in a lot of them and then somehow um, things just came together at Nairobi Jeffrey Academy and they took me for teaching practice and to me that was really a start of my um, teaching, well, I would say teaching career in international schools and yeah, see where it got me. Interesting. I mean, you know, many people, I think many people in my generation, when we have career talks and all, we're asked who wants to become a teacher, everyone's just like, you know. <laughs> you know yeah, and I, I think I, and, that was the same, I think for yeah. most teachers, you know, when they were also students, that they didn't think of being a teacher as a career path. Yeah, no. totally. And I understand why students. How long did it take for you, you know, to do sort of your university and your you were saying about where you are at Nairobi Jaffa Academy? How long mm -hmm. did that take you? Well, so um, it took me four years at the university. Um, the education course is well for four years for all um, subject areas. So basically, I was training to be a secondary teacher of English and literature. Oh, that's a four years course and then in third year um, we had this time that is called like a long holidays it's um, pretty much what you'd consider like a summer because it, it it though it strikes it strikes us from around uh, what, what time was it I think May June yeah May June July that just around that time that's when um, university students were being released for um, teaching practice and that is in their third year of, of uni and um, usually it was that way because following the you know previous um, local curriculum the 844 that was around second term of um, of the school of the school academic calendar so that's when you used to be released to go for a teaching practice so actually what happened for me is when my group was released for teaching practice I did not go for teaching practice then because I already had set my mind for an international school and what happens in, um, in most of the international schools is like around that time I think it's uh, probably yeah third, third term it's actually third term and so most of the schools only have May and June and then July they have to break for um, summer holidays but then it's compulsory for us to cover three months of internship so it was very difficult for me to get a, an opportunity at that time because it, it would mean I only have two months, May and June. 
you know, and then July would um, probably be half a month or it would not be complete. So basically I didn't meet the requirements um, for international schools then. And also it's an academic, it, it's an examination time in most of the international schools. So it kind of, I wouldn't get enough contact time to teach. So I did not go for my teaching practice then. I decided to kind of take a risk then, which was um, again against my parents' wishes. <laughs> because yeah, it's, it's at that point, uh, you know, they're like, hey, come on, you know, you're supposed to be completing your degree or are you missing stuff? Yeah, But yeah, I just took a risk and went and kind of just looked for a job actually at that time in a tuition center and it kind of made me very conversant with now teaching the international curriculum what exactly is Cambridge what is IB I didn't know about those stuff I was just kind of hearing about them and then in January of the following year when I was in fourth year now that's when I did my teaching practice so it was pretty much a gamble for me but then I did I did my teaching practice in fourth year at Nairobi Jeffrey Academy yeah, and once I finished, went and finished my semesters, and I was able to graduate in 2015, December. So basically, it was a four years course from 2011 to 2015. Interesting. I mean, yeah, it was uh, sort of a gamble that you had to take, but I mean, it looks like it worked out for you. Yeah, it was an ab absolute gamble, but it was um, totally worth it because I felt like I was making some calculated risks. And yeah, I'm glad that's totally worked out. I mean, it's it's one of the things I always tell you know everyone who asks about my career journey. I always make sure I mention that part of my story. So why did you become a teacher? I mean, you know, out of all the other sort of careers, I mean, you're mentioning before you could become you know a doctor or a lawyer or a journalist. Why a teacher? Okay, yeah, that's that's interesting because, well, at first, like I said, I actually never thought about being never thought about being a teacher, but when I actually thought about being a teacher later on, I was thinking about something that I'm really really interested in. Now, all these other things about being a doctor, being a lawyer, um, being an engineer, there were things that I I kind of realized after high school were things that were just being driven into me. You know, it's 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 not something that I was inspired to do. I was just being programmed for you know those things. I mean, being in school, having um listening to career talks, everything that I could hear was yeah, you should become an engineer because engineers blah 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 they make a lot of money. You are guaranteed to get a job as soon as you graduate. All that. Yeah, you should become a doctor because doctors. There's, there's a lot of opportunities for doctors. As soon as you graduate, you get jobs. You know, you're on demand and things like that. Yeah. For law, for law, it was pretty much the same thing. You know, and but of course, you know, there are also those things where you're told like, yeah, law is very crowded, so you really, really have to be good in it and all the, all those kind of stuff. Yeah. Education never occurred to me. So really what happened is when I finished high school and got, got an A minor, as I mentioned that earlier, um, I remember applying for uh, um, a nursing course at Moy University and I was, I was taken, but then my parents were like, no, but the, the fee would be quite high. So I was very disappointed then because like 
this is actually an idea that you guys pushed into me. I never really said I wanted to be a doctor. I never said I wanted to be a medic in any way or or practice. But somehow, you know, you you have put me in that position. But now that I've gotten um, an admission letter, you're telling me you can't afford paying for it. And it was kind of very tricky, you know. So I got I got very disappointed, but then it's in that disappointment that I kind of figured out anyway. You know all this stuff that I've actually been doing. I've not been doing it for me. You know I've been asked about it. It's something that I've been talked into over time. It's like if if I'm meant to do something, what would I do? And like I mentioned earlier, I was really thinking about theater, um, theater studies and and drama and film. That had always been my interest. You know, in in high school, I was in drama club. I was one of the very active members. And I remember every single year in high school, I used to quit drama club because I would be told, no, it's, it's distracting you from your academics. You are failing because of that. So I would quit. But then somehow I would just find myself back there, you know, once things start taking shape and I see, oh, there's a play that is coming up, I would just find myself there. So that was my area of, really, my area of interest. So I thought about that and I was like, yeah, so I would, I would think about doing something in drama and theater. But then around that time, we didn't have any courses in the universities that yeah, kind of dealt with, you know, drama and theater. They didn't exist then. Right now, at least they exist, you know, and you have like Kenyatta University, which has this whole wing right now of um, drama and theater and film production, which is lovely, yeah? But then such opportunities were not there. It would mean that I actually had to go maybe to um, schools like Kenya Institute of Mass Communication, which was, yeah, yeah, a, a, a mass media thing or communication college then. And looking at, well, there are several colleges like those, yeah? And looking at the entry requirements, they were pretty low. So it was kind of very difficult for me to start convincing my parents that with an A minus, I would be applying for a course where, the, you know, entry level, you know, C or, you know, something like that. It was kind of very complicated. But ironically, that was the same thing for education. So I went to revise my um, course selections and where I had put like medicine, um, law and engineering as my first choices. And I kind of secretly changed that to education after I found out that if I do education in English language and literature, I would have drama and theater. So the whole idea was for me to um, do something that allows me to do drama and theater. And so I was like, if I end up becoming a teacher, then I would want to teach drama and theater. But um, before I could teach drama and theater, I had to do an education course in English language and literature and major in literature. It's after majoring in literature that I would have those units to do with theater and drama. And so that is pretty much how I kind of found myself diving into this, you know, teaching profession. But it was until I started doing it that I actually discovered that this is um, pretty much something that was meant for me. And I have experienced massive growth in it. And I have had the opportunity as well of working with um, students in drama and theater. So I do feel that even if I did not eventually end up being a teacher of drama and theater, I actually have qualifications that would allow me to do that. But I have 
opportunities to work with students in drama and theater. And that means to me, it's been a really great win-win because I get English and literature, which was always my strength and an opportunity to work with students in drama and theater in school productions. Wow. I mean, it's, you know, a whole sort of story, you know, that we've all given us. I mean, it's quite yeah, interesting. It's massive. You know? <laughs> and I speak quite a lot. So in case I, in, in case I'm speaking a lot, you know, it just feel free to cut me shot. Yeah, <laughs> are you the boss? <laughs> are you happy with being a teacher? Absolutely. Absolutely. I would not, I, I don't think I would have done anything else better. The thing with getting into teaching at first, it's it's just like one of those one of those things, you know, where you don't know so much just yet. It's something that you're just diving into. You know, I've grown up seeing um, teachers. My mother was actually a teacher, you know, and she was she was, she was teaching in um, well different different schools. The last school that my mother taught and re- and until she retired was a uh, school for the um, school for the deaf yeah and so i did see my mother really challenge herself to learn sign language and i found that quite kind of very interesting how someone a teacher would actually move from you know one school to another school that is totally different and have to learn new things and adjust and those new things are actually kind of very difficult. For example, um, my mother had to learn sign language and she became really, really good. And I saw her kind of growing in her in her career. And to me, I don't know how much that inspired me, to be honest. I don't know how much that inspired me because I didn't get any ideas about becoming a teacher from my parents or rather they didn't talk to me about the opportunities of being a teacher. So it was until later on that I found out those opportunities and I naively entered into the teaching profession with the intention of, you know, yeah, drama and theater, (laughs) having access to that. But while in the profession, a lot of things actually happened to me. I found found myself moving from from a Cambridge program at Nairobi Jeffrey Academy, um, who also, sorry, I, I think this is very important for me to mention, actually. I mentioned earlier that I did my internship at Nairobi Jeffrey Academy. And something that happened that made, made me actually realize that I could actually make a really good teacher is that after that internship, I was told, you know, you, you've done a wonderful job. You, we would really, really love to keep you. But then I needed to go back to college and complete my courses. Yeah, so they told me, yeah, so in future, once you are done with your uni, if you see an opportunity here and you'd like to consider applying, then feel free to, you know, to apply. And so when I finished and graduated, I applied when there was an opportunity and found myself at Nairobi Jeffrey again. Now as a teacher, employed and being paid, you know. So the thing is, I think that internship experience really taught me something really important. You know, this this is something that I kind of found myself in, but it seems like I'm good at it. I had a really easy time with students at Nairobi Jeffrey, and it appeared like my seniors then appreciated what I was doing with my students, and they were happy to keep me. So they later on, you know, employed me.
And then from Nairobi Jaffrey, I went to um, Aga Khan Academy, Nairobi. And from Aga Khan Academy, Nairobi, moved to Ghana to a um, school called Association International School. And then from Ghana, now moved to um, Colombia at Colegio Gran Bretaña. And the thing is, I discovered that really being being a teacher is not just about you know stepping in that class and and just teaching it it's, it's a matter of you know shaping lives and we have lots of responsibility towards that in the 21st century despite the fact that yeah there are lots of changes that have happened to learning that have necessitated that we as teachers also adjust what teaching looks like and really focus on skills that are relevant for the future um, but I also discovered there are lots of other opportunities to being a teacher. Like at, at the moment, as as we uh, as we speak, I, I am now an um, international visitor with the National England Association of um, of um, schools and colleges. Um, that basically means I am responsible for um, moving um, around. Um, some schools and just checking their standards and practices and offering advice and recommendations as well and learning from you know learning from experience wonderful experiences that other schools are doing out there I ended up being a personal project coordinator in Ghana I ended up being an extended essay coordinator here in Colombia and now I'm just moving into a new role as the head of English department and the thing is, I realized that there are lots and lots of massive, you know, opportunities to being a teacher. Oh, yeah, um, I also work as an examiner for the um, International Baccalaureate. And there are lots of other opportunities that teachers basically move in from regular class to different other, you know, opportunities that you still could do while still being a, you know, classroom teacher. And so there's massive growth in the field, something that you don't exactly see until you're actually there. And then you discover, oh, there are opportunities here. Congrats on, uh, I think, being promoted for head of English. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, it was a whole sort of interesting one. You know, we learned a lot, I think, just from that one question. Mm -hmm. But I want to move on to something that... Many people consider when, you know, looking for a career is, yeah. hey, you know, many people consider it, you know, that's why I feel a lot of people are into, you know, medicine, you know, engineering, because mm -hmm. there's good money in the career. Yeah. So, on average, as a teacher, what's the pay like? Well... <laughs> <laughs> that's um that's that's a tricky question you know it's uh, one of those things i know um in 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 kenya when when things like those happen if somebody asks you you know you say something like hey mazay nigod nigod you know <laughs> well i would say i would say it varies it, it varies quite quite a lot yeah if you think about if you think about being a teacher, for example, um, if you are a teacher in Kenya, trained for trained trained as a teacher, and get, then you get your teaching certificate, that is um, the TSC certificate, and you are practicing in Kenya, um, teaching in the say local curriculums. Eight well, it's moved from eight four four to CBC right now, yeah. To so if you're a CBC teacher. 
then it varies, you know, depending on your job group. So we actually have like um, teachers who have been trained for ECD and then you have um, teachers for uh, like primary primary school now and now junior secondary and um, senior secondary. So depending on where you are, the salary range varies depending on your job group. So those who come in from, you know, from colleges and not from the university, from the colleges. Um, like they're called P1 teachers. Um, their their pay grade might be um, slightly slightly lower because they come into a lower job group as compared to those who are graduating from the universities. It's always really a challenge because there are so many people who um, do education. You know, they like lots of people graduate with an education degree. So getting employed as a teacher for those in, in the local curriculum always requires you to wait for quite some time. You know, you'd actually look, for example, this year, you might actually find that when TSE would be recruiting teachers, probably they're giving priority to teachers who graduated maybe like around in 2022. They might be like right now in 2017, 2018. You know, so those are the teachers being given priority at the moment. Yet we have people who've graduated in 2018, 2019, 2020, 2021, you know, 2022. You know, so it requires you to wait for a very long time before well, you, you get a job. And in terms of um, the payment, I, I don't know, to be honest, I, I don't know how confidently I can speak about that because I'm not quite sure about what teachers are at that level because I've never worked in that capacity. The wonderful thing about it is teachers who like working in the, well, most of the teachers who are happy to take those jobs are um, guaranteed permanent and pensionable salaries. So basically they'll earn for the rest of their lives until they retire. And that's the difference with those who go for the private sector because if you um, choose that route and if you international school like us you have to prioritize things like saving and investment for the future because um, we don't have we don't have pensions <laughs> but private sector would um, most of the private sectors schools and international schools for that matter would pay slightly higher than what teachers um, in the local curriculum get in fact, slightly is an understatement. Some of them could be a lot more. It could be like around four times more. It could be it could be that much depending again on the size of the international school that you've gone to. Then if you're to make a move out of the country, it's even better because um, it comes with it, it comes with a bigger salary and lots of other perks and benefits you know, which you don't get as a local teacher. So most of the time, well, from my experience in international schools in Kenya, I would actually be there and see expatriates who are working with us, the foreigners who are working with us, being paid really, really well, you know. So I said, yeah, I would like to be an expert as well because I'd like to experience that. So And it comes with lots of benefits. You get schools where you have, you know, your housing is paid for, um, you have a tax-free income, 
you have transport being provided, you have international medical insurance, you have um, free tuition for your kids. So lots of those things and you, you can see they kind of cut down on your expenses so they, they also help you save a lot especially um, considering that you're also having a very good salary. I think I might be having to change my career path. Oh yeah, you should consider it. <laughs> I mean, some time back I wouldn't tell anybody to think about being a teacher, but right now I see the benefits of being a teacher. And like I also said, um, if you are keen on growing and developing, then you also find other earning opportunities from just being a teacher. So like right now I am a teacher who's earning a salary, but I have like other three different opportunities that provide me some extra income. So I want to move a bit into sort of the future, you know. Mm -hmm. AI has grown a lot over the past couple of years. What mm -hmm. do you think of it? Come again, please. So AI has grown a lot over the past okay. couple of years, you know, things like that, GPT, all those yeah, kinds yeah. of things. Well, um, that's, that's an interesting question. I am very, I am very, tech, I, I consider myself as one of the tech service teachers, really. <laughs> and for me, technology is, is here to stay. Technology is here to transform lots of things. Um, I think there's lots of narratives that come around anytime there's a shift. You know, people become unsettled and uncomfortable, and it's been the same thing for AI. And yeah, yeah, it's it's here to you know replace teachers. Teachers will no longer be relevant. All right, sorry, just give me a second. I have I have my little daughter here. Okay, can you go and stay with our brain, please? Go stay with brain. I'm okay. Sorry, Rehan, just give me a second. Yeah, no worries. <laughs> Please. Okay. So, you know, would you fear, I mean, you mentioned about AI could take over your job, do you fear that it will? Well, um, it may, it may not, but I'm not, I'm not really afraid, <laughs> you know. At that particular point where I think that um, what happens has to happen in line with um, technology, you know. Um, if the world is um, reaching that point or it's going towards that point where pretty much all innovation, all decisions, all work processes would be technologically driven, then AI is a very important is, is a very important thing. <clears throat> From where I sit when I think about it, it's it's more or less um, calling for the need for you know teachers to readjust and reinvent um, the teaching processes and the curriculum so that um, we're not necessarily focused on, you know, content as education has been traditionally, rather what skills students actually acquire and how those skills are going to be relevant for the future. Um, if soft skills is what the world is going to need in the next five or ten years and, and the future, then that's what education is supposed to focus on right now. Empowering learners to um, to develop their soft skills, to develop their collaboration, their innovation and things, you know, and things like that. And any curriculum to me that promotes rather enhances that, then I, I would say it's, it's an opportunity for 
teachers to improve and up their game. As well and as, as AI comes in and it, and it looks like it's a solution giver right now to so many things, there's still lots and lots of things, you know, that AI still can't do. And there's still lots of opportunities for teachers as well to grow their practice through the use of the same, you know, AIs. I, I use AIs right now to plan to plan for some of my classes. I use AIs to um, just kind of organize what I want to write as student re reports. And it, it makes things easier as well for, you know, for me as a teacher. And I still see massive opportunity as to how, as to how AI can be used to enrich learning. So to me, it's more or less like, yeah, AI is here. It's not saying that, yeah, now that I'm here, teachers have no work at all. So um, now that I'm here, I can make things a lot easier for everyone, including new teachers. And so it's a matter of um, seeing how we could work together with technology to improve um, what needs to be learned for the future. After all, technology is as good as the knowledge that we feed into it. And so teachers are still going to be relevant. And, um, and AI is, of course, definitely going to develop. And as it keeps developing, there will always be new sets of challenges and other things that will need to be fed into it. And education would still continue being... Um, relevant I say in, in years to come until it is no longer relevant. <laughs> so I want to ask you about sort of the education career. Is it like competitive? Like, you know, someone is, you know, maybe deciding what they're gonna do in uni, you know, and they think of education. Do you think the career is competitive? Do you think it's hard to get into it? Well the thing about education is, I, I would say it's totally, it totally depends really on on one's, one's, one's um, passion and abilities. I, that, that's one of the things that I would say about education. I, it's not just easy if you're just waking up and saying, yeah, I just want to be a teacher. I want to step into class because it comes with, you know, a whole set of challenges, you know, the things that someone needs to learn and understand you know for example we need to kind of understand about safeguarding and and you know and child protection which is something that is very very crucial and for example those those might not be things that are strongly emphasized well i can't remember for my case that being strongly emphasized in my teacher training but those are things that i learned about later on and how important they they were you know there's the whole idea of behavior management and if you're coming from a system where where you know like the oldest like we guys where um corporal punishment was the order of the day that is how behavior was being uh, managed you know behavior and performance you know like you get a question wrong and then you get slapped or like okay so how was that slap gonna help me get that sum right <laughs> you know so there's there's a lot really to learn in terms of practicing in education and it calls for lots of um open-mindedness especially if you have to implement education successfully in the 21st century so is it competitive yes it is competitive what makes it competitive it is the different things that one needs to learn and the mind shift that needs to occur to a teacher uh, 
if they have to be very competitive as 21st century teachers. And so just like other careers, I would say it is um, quite competitive. But is there opportunity? Yes, there is opportunity, massive, massive opportunity for growth. It only depends on how one exerts themselves, how much um, one is ready to learn, acquire, and how much change they're actually ready to to imbibe in their mindset so that they could actually be better teachers. So maybe, you know, in the next 20 years, would we still see Mr. Sami still teaching language and literature? <laughs> Oh, that's an interesting question. So currently, I am um, I'm pursuing my master's degree, uh, the University of um, um, John Moore's University in Liverpool. And the thing is, I I'm always I'm always thinking growth. I'm always thinking about um, leadership. So um, where I am thinking about in terms of my career projection is to immerse myself more into leadership, uh, into educational leadership, and into areas where I am able to influence um, policy making and shape education in the best way possible. I'm thinking about my country as well a lot. Because well, that's 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 my motherland, and if there's any way I could um, help to shape the education future of my country, that's something that I would really want to do. Because there's lots of talent in my country, and um, at the moment I am not I'm not a happy person with the implementation of the CBC. There's lots of improvements. I really appreciate CBC for what it is, but feel like better advice and better policy making could actually have been considered to to make Kenya have a seamless transition into this wonderful program. So where I see myself in the next um, 20 years, as you asked, is probably being in uh, positions where I'm able to influence policy, probably not in class anymore. I'm probably thinking about ministerial positions or in um, in education or probably just working with international um, education education related organization just basically to help in policy making and shaping <clears throat> and and providing advice in terms of improving um, access and and access to you know quality education so the final question for today's podcast is mm-hmm. what's one piece of advice you'd give someone thinking about becoming a teacher well i would say if anyone is thinking about being a teacher i would say go for it i would say um, if you are thinking it then it means you can be it and you can be cool while at it. Um, gone are the days when, I, I think, gone are the days when teachers would be considered, you know, the most uncool people, you know, or uncultured people. It's um, gone are the days where um, teachers' job was just to come to class, teach and go home, or rather teach and whoop students, then go home. You know, it's, it's changed into um, being persons who have the ability to, transform lives, you know, to kind of 
create bigger impacts um, that live in the lives of students who end up being innovators in the future. And so I would say, if anyone is thinking about being a teacher, go for it. Um, don't think about don't think about the incentive, because the incentive comes, really, but it comes with how good you are at what you do. And if you immerse yourself and you're ready to learn and you are ready to accept that this is an ever-changing field, perhaps the fastest ever-changing field next to technology is education, then you will be very, very much um, ready to learn. You'll be very open-minded to embracing these changes and you will find yourself being an excellent and lovable teacher who's who's very impactful to to the learners so if anyone is considering it then i'd say go for it but you'd have to be very open-minded and ready to embrace the changes that come with it all right thank you mr sammy for that all right. thank you very much for coming on taking some time out of your day and all right that's morning so have a lovely day all right and thank, thank you, you very, very much for coming on for the viewers. I hope you enjoyed today's podcast and I hope you're able to pick something from that from that from us. That is all. Please drop us please subscribe to our channel and follow us on all our social media pages. From Mr. Sammy and I, we're out. Thank you. All right. Thank you. Episode 7. Justice in Motion, Exploring the Life of Lawyers. Hello and welcome to Professionally Speaking. I'm your host Rahan Ali Muhammad and welcome to Episode 7, the second last episode of this season. Uh, next episode we have someone very special. That will be joining us, so do look forward to that. But while you're here, I do have someone special with me now. I have a lawyer. I think it's something that, you know, people that are good at public speaking have maybe thought of getting into, has been, you know, pushed into some people. So with me today, I have Zakir Muhammad, a lawyer by profession. Good evening, Zakir. How are you? Hi Rayan, thanks. Uh, thanks very much for having me on today. Um, it's a it's a pleasure to be here with you. Yeah, no, thank you for taking time out of your busy day or night, as I should say, to come and do this. Uh, no worries at all. So, uh, tell me, Rayan, how do you want to get started? So, I want to get to know you. Who is Zakir Muhammad? Sure, sure. I'll 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 give you a a very quick um very quick history. So. I was born in Nairobi. I've grown up here. I went to the Aga Khan Junior Academy and then the Aga Khan Academy um, for 13 years of my life. Um, did uh, the IB program, um, just like you, and, uh, you know, loved it. I, I think the school, you know, gave me an excellent foundation to set me up for the future. Um, and I still, I still, you know, value some of the values that the school has inculcated in me after that i went to the uk to the university of warwick i studied um, law 
Um, and after that, I chose to come back home um, just because of the opportunities that I saw at home. And, um, you know, I not only wanted to make a difference at home, but I wanted to sort of add to the development in the best way that I could. And I'm sure through the questions that you're going to ask me, we'll talk a bit more about this. Yeah, we will get more into it. So you mentioned about, you know, you went to the University of Warwick, if I'm not mistaken. How long did that take? So uh, the actual degree was a three-year degree. And you don't really specialize. I mean, you can start taking courses of stuff that you're interested in. Um, but there are, you know, you kind of study everything. As a lawyer, you, you know, you have to get the base foundation. But I did want to specialize in corporate and commercial law um, just because that's that stuff really interested me. And then I moved back to Kenya. And then that's another two years of law school in Kenya in order for you to get your license. So I would say overall about five years uh, to qualify as a lawyer, maybe six years, you know, depending on where you study and, you know, how quickly you study. So do you need just an undergrad or can you do like a master's and a PhD in law? Look, the, the, sky, the sky is really the ceiling, right? So you can do a master's in law, you can do a PhD in law, um, you can go on to teach at uh, universities, um, you can go on to research, you can go into theoretical law, you can go into practical law. The, the scope is really big. If you study in the UK, it's an undergrad degree. If you study in North America, so the US and Canada, it's a postgraduate degree. So you'd kind of do an undergrad in something else you're interested in and then go to law school. Um, so it varies per jurisdiction. In Kenya, if you study here, it's also an undergrad degree, but it's a four-year four course, not a three-year course. So why did you become a lawyer? I mean, you know, there are so many professions out there. Yeah. For the last six episodes, I've seen all these different so why become a lawyer? Right. It's a good question, man. You know, I, I, I unfortunately don't have an answer that goes along the lines of um, it was my calling. It really wasn't. Uh, <laughs> I didn't know I wanted to become a lawyer till I was in DP1. And even then, I still didn't know I wanted to become a lawyer. When I was in law school, I still wasn't sure I wanted to become a lawyer. But I'll tell you why I got into the field of law. It's because, you know, I thought that, okay, one, it's, it was interesting um, to learn about the law, but I didn't go into law wanting to become a lawyer. I went into law because I wanted to learn and I wanted to structure my thinking. I wanted to have a very good foundational degree so that I'm setting myself up for the future. So whatever I did after doing my law degree, I always had a good foundation. That was the thinking. Me becoming a lawyer was actually opportunistic. It was because I was offered certain jobs and in certain companies and I chose to take that. And then, you know, I just grew into my role. So, I mean, it was a very practical approach I took. And yeah, you're right. I could have literally been anything, but I guess this is the, the logical route I took. So... I mean, you mentioned you got into it for learning and all. So are you happy being a lawyer? Am I happy being a lawyer? That's <laughs> it's uh, an interesting question. I'm happy with what I do. Um, and I'm happy that I'm able to use my skills 
to apply myself in my everyday job and sort of the impact that my job makes to the greater community. And we can talk a bit about that later on. I'm happy that I became a lawyer because I would say what I'm happy about is what it's the skills it's given me. If I'd become an architect, if I had become a doctor, if I'd become a businessman, if I become an economist, whatever it may be, I think I would still be happy um, as long as I was applying my skills sort of to one, make an impact, but to also earn a decent living. So I think that's, you know, it's a good balance. So overall, yeah, I would say I'm happy. So you mentioned two things that I want to pick up on. One was skills. What skills, you know, by going to university and studying law have you gained from, you know, studying, studying law? Yeah. Yeah. Look, I guess it varies per individual, right? You go, you get out as much as you put in. And what law really taught me was that, one, how do you apply yourself? You've got a set of facts or a set of circumstances in life. How do you take these circumstances and facts and make the most out of it? Uh, I'll give you an example. You go to a supermarket, right? And um, you know, you've got five types of lettuce to buy. How do you process all that information, go to the till and pick you know, not only the cheapest, but the one that's got the best quality, the one that's packaged in the most sustainable way, the one that's grown in the most sustainable way. So it's applying all these different skill sets and, you know, then getting the outcome of the product. And that's what it is. It just teaches you, you know, real life skills. What it does in specific is, you know, it gives you as a lawyer, you've got to synthesize a lot of information and come out with an opinion or a determination you know, to either help your client or further some research or a case or something. Um, and that's that's really the skill set I wanted to 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 build. The other thing that that law really helps me with helped me with, and I think maybe helps other people as well with is structuring your thinking. You know, how do you take, like we said, a big problem and systematically break it down to come up with a potential solution um, going forward? So another thing you mentioned was um, a decent living. So I know this is going to be a bit controversial, but on average, you know, lawyers around the world. Yeah, look, it it varies, right? It varies the economy that you're in. It varies on your skill set. It varies the comp based on the company that you're in. It varies on the type of law you're practicing. It varies on what the market needs. And when I say decent living, I don't just mean making money right what i mean is yes you earn a you know you earn well but you also are able to give back to the community you have a decent work life balance maybe not the best but a decent work life balance so that you're able to also you know volunteer do some pro bono projects so what constitutes a decent living for me is not just the money right it's you know having this holistic i'm able to spend time with my friends with my family i'm able to volunteer and do the most with my skill set to help the people around me. But what do lawyers make? Look, it really varies. And, you know, some you know, people will tell you that when you earn money, it's never enough. Um, so it's being a, it's being grateful for what you have that that makes it a decent living. I think that's a very good quote that's never enough. And I think I can relate that, you know, back to <laughs> <Right>. uh, <laughs> So AI has 
grown a lot over the past couple of years. What's your view? Yes. I love ChatGPT. And I love Dali. And I love Quillbot. Um, let me tell you why. Because they make my life easier. Right? ChatGPT, if you use it correctly, can, and by the way, I, I subscribe to premium ChatGPT because I just, you know, the, the way the way it helps me be more efficient with my tasks is incredible. Of course, I'm not going to plug in confidential information, but it helps you understand concepts. You know, you can plug in complicated thoughts into ChatGPT and say, help me synthesize this information. And it does that for you. It breaks it down, helps you structure your thinking so that when you are drafting or when you're giving advice, you're able to also synthesize the information in a similar way. Dali, you know, when I like, I've got crazy ideas and I'm like, all right, how do I get this to work? Write down my ideas. It prints a, you know, prints a picture for me. And then, you know, it kind of helps me with my mind map, right? These are all my ideas. This is how they work together. And uh, Quillbot, honestly, Quillbot helps me draft emails in such an efficient way. You know, if I want to say something and then I don't think it's, it's worded well, I plug it into Quillbot. It helps me rephrase my sentences to perhaps be more friendly or be more direct, you know, however I want it to be. So I think, I think AI, you know, is an incredible tool. I know your next question is going to be, is it going to make us redundant? And I'll give you an example, right? I do not think it will make us redundant, but it will if we do not adapt. Let me give you an example. You know, uh, a couple of centuries ago, the printing press was invented. Prior to the printing press, you know, there were people's jobs were scribes. They would write um, out books, write out the news, literally everything would be handwritten. When the printers, printing press came, you know, everyone freaked out. These people are going to lose their jobs and it's going to make the art of handwriting um, redundant. One, we've seen that's not entirely the case because there's still, you know, we still handwrite a lot. But two, the people who survived are the people who adapted and learned how to use that printing press to make their jobs easier and see how they can adapt with this, what we call a disruptive technology. In my opinion, AI is the same thing, right? If we don't learn how to adapt, we will be left behind. But if we try to stay ahead of the knowledge curve with AI and make use of it, then our jobs are not going to be redundant because nothing can replace, you know, the quality of human thinking. These are all driven by human thoughts. But if we're not able to understand them, that's when it becomes risky. So I, I hope I, I hope I answered that preempt, preempted question. Well, I think you answered a question that was not on the list, but okay. I mean, it, you gave your, you know, your opinion and all, and I mean, it's a good thought. I, uh, I know, uh, you know, the other people on the show have also said similar things. You know, they okay. use it for make their life easier. So, do you fear that AI could take over your job? I fear that I will not keep up fast enough to understand AI, to make use of it. That's my fear. I think jobs and careers are fluid. You know, myself, I've had, you know, a couple of career changes in my short career span, um, still in law, but, you know, focusing on different areas, doing different things. And I think we constantly have to adapt. And my fear is if 
I get complacent and I'm not able to learn fast enough and adapt, then you get left behind. Then, you know, people say, okay, yes, the culprit is AI, but the culprit really is us. We're not keeping ourselves, you know, educated fast enough. So, I mean, this AI chat has, you know, I think it's taken the world by storm. And I mean, yeah. you know, we can go on for this for hours, you know. So, I want to come back to, you know, now, is, you know, becoming a lawyer competitive, you know? Yeah. Look, in this part of the world, uh, in Kenya, it's extremely competitive. You know, we were seeing news, the newspaper headlines in the past week talking about youth unemployment being extremely high. And these are not people who are not educated, right? These are people who are who are uh, very well educated. You know, they're all lawyers and they're, they're not finding jobs. In addition to that, there's been a couple of, uh, you know, reports by you know, the agencies like World Bank, the UN, all stating that by 2040, Africa's population, Africa's working population is going to be the largest in the world. The problem now, is if you have this large working population, but not enough jobs, um, that's when your unemployment rates get high and naturally very competitive. You also have people living longer now and working longer in their careers. So, you know, they're not freeing up those spots. So the only way to do this is to ensure sustainable development. So I know I'm not just talking about law here. I'm talking about just careers in general. And it applies to the legal system and things like disruptive technologies like artificial intelligence don't help that, you know, they just make that process even harder. So it is going to it is very competitive today and it is going to continue to be competitive. But, you know, my advice to people coming in and I'm still very, very early on in my career as well, is we need to continue upskilling. How do you find a niche that you are one passionate about and two that adds value in people's lives and continue educating yourself on that so that you don't left, get left behind the knowledge curve. It's the only way, honestly, to, to stay ahead of it because there's brilliant people coming into the workforce and, you know, it, it just adds that pressure. So how do you think we can, you know, make sort of the career less competitive? I mean, we keep it sustainable, you know, so for my generation, when they want to become lawyers, this space for them. How do you think we can do that? Look, I think I think um, there's a couple of things, right? The first is, as a as a profession, we need to be understanding of new people coming in. We need to be we need to mentor people coming in because we also don't want our profession to die out, right? So what we can do is foster have a you know foster a learning environment. Um, and look out for each other so that we're supporting each other. So instead of, you know, trying to, you know, I mean, competition is good because it keeps the quality up, but it's not good when it becomes hostile. So, you know, it's keeping that brotherhood within the fraternity, as they would say, right? But I also think it's it's supporting young people. A lot of young people are actually turning away from being lawyers because they don't see law as a career of the future. Um, while that might be true to a certain extent, you will always need lawyers. You're always going to need people to help regulate, help give advice, you know, help create structures for society to function and be governed in the right way. You know, you're always going to have human relations. You're always going to have contracts. You're always going to have technologies coming about which need to be regulated. 
And that's the role of a lawyer. It's to really help people navigate these complex legal landscapes. And as and they are getting increasingly complex, you know, with AI, with deep with machine learning, with robotics, with the advancement of medical care, with and we're seeing in the world with the advancement of this um civic society, the movement of, you know, the um uh, the, the black right, uh, the um, Black Lives Matter movement, with the Me Too movement, with the LGBTQIA plus movement, these are you know complicated landscapes that people need help navigating, and they're also ethical landscapes that you know they help they need help navigating, and so there'll always be a place for a lawyer to be there. We just need to find a way to adapt to the ever changing world so that we stay relevant. So that's my advice I would give to somebody who's trying to come in. I mean, that's you know, interesting. I mean, you've covered up a whole lot of area, you know. I think it's something that lawyers are not going to go out anytime soon, you know. I was told that, you know, pick a career path that's not going to go out anytime soon, you know, become a lawyer. Because yeah. AI is not going to, you know, become a lawyer for you. So can, can, you I, can I just say something interesting? to you I just respond to your your interesting uh, comment i think and you know to anyone who's listening to this podcast i think that whatever career you choose you shouldn't be limited by the confines of that career i am a lawyer i work i i started off my career in a private equity firm i moved to a corporate law firm with all the other lawyers, and I moved out of that recently back into a consulting and private equity firm. So I'm one of four lawyers on the team, but I have you know a team of you know 20 people around me who are different backgrounds: economists, um, people who've done finance, uh, and engineers. So the conventional careers that we know might not be there. So don't let the career you choose limit your thinking. I have friends who are lawyers who are sports lawyers. They're doing stuff in the sports space. I have friends who are lawyers in the who are in the media space who are singing and producing music. Right? So whatever career you choose, my advice would be choose it to learn, but you know, choose the degree, choose the course to learn, but don't let it limit your possibilities because you can be as creative as you want in the career. And nowadays career lines are blurred. I mean, you know, I've even seen like, you know, doctors working at airports, you know, so I think those career lines, as you said, are blurred now, you know, it's not that a lawyer is, you know, has to sit in an office and then go to court. and then Exactly. Exactly. You know, and by the way, I don't go to court at all. I've been to court twice in my life. <laughs> so there you go. Yeah. So do you think there is space for more people to join, you know, law career? Absolutely. Absolutely. I think there will always be space because we create that space. I think, you know, people who want to join the career should think about what's their unique um, offering to this profession. Let's create that space. You know, I have the opinion that we should not be trying to all, you know, take a small cut of the same pie. We should be making the pie bigger so that we all can have enough from that pie. And that's what I would say. I mean, you know, I'm one person that, you know, loves to give, if I'm saying something, I love to give an example of the complete opposite thing. And I think right. that's interesting how you mentioned the pie. So, I mean, 
yeah, I completely agree with you. All the professions, you know, for the new generation are coming in. And yeah, I mean, it's very sort of interesting, you know, like how we need to make space because yeah. you know, in the next years, uh, job sustainability, like how you said, you know, Africa has become one of the most biggest employment areas in the world. That's right, yes. So we do need to make that space, and that space needs to start up from now. So we totally agree to... with you. So I totally last... agree with you. Our last question for today, what's one piece of advice you would give someone thinking about becoming a lawyer? Okay, it's good. It's a good, good question because I'm thinking, what would I tell myself? you know, my younger self 10 years ago when I was just leaving high school, starting off my, my law degree. And I think I would say, one, there is no shortcut to hard work. There's going to be long nights, many of them for many, many, many years. I'm talking about decades, you know, there's no shortcut to hard work. There is no shortcut to success. It's a long road not only in law, but in any career, but I'm just, you know, specifically in law. Two, be focused. Know where you want to go. You know, have a game plan. The game plan can change, no problem. But make sure you have a game plan so that you know where you're walking or running towards. It's not just, you know, in any direction. Three, I would say, know your values, right? You're going to be tested in life. Have a foundational values that you live by. It's very important how you talk to people, how you treat people, what work you take on, how you advise clients. It's it's you know integrity is everything in this in this um, in this profession. And four, I would say, stay true to yourself. You know yourself better than anyone else, right? Success takes different forms. Yes, you know, maybe different lawyers around you are doing different things, or maybe they're making more money, or maybe they're in a bigger firm. But that doesn't determine success. You determine your own success. And, you know, because it's a long journey, it's very important to keep reminding ourselves that, hey, this is where I want to go. But more importantly, look where I've come from. And that is success in itself. That's my final piece of advice I would share. I think we got four or five advices from one advice. <laughs> I, should, uh, I should charge you for my time now, like a good lawyer. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, thank you, Zakir, for taking time out of your busy day slash night to come and do this. To the viewers, thank you for watching. I really appreciate it, and thank you for all the support. Do follow us on all our social medias at Professionally Speaking. Our next episode is going to be a memorable one. It is going to be the finale episode. So do look forward to that. For me and Zakir, we are out. Thank you for watching and we look forward to seeing you soon. All the best. See you later. Episode 8. Scrolling Success, Digital Influencers Unveiled. Hello and welcome to Professionally Speaking. For the last episode of this season, I'm your host, Rahan Ali Muhammad. 
Yeah, just a quick one before we start. I would like to thank everyone for watching these last uh, seven episodes. I know it's going to be the finale, the eighth episode. And thank you very much to all the you know, guests that have come on, taken their time. I really appreciate it. But without further ado, let's get into the last episode of the season. So with me today, I have Radhika, who is a social media influencer. And something I feel that many people in my generation and a few generations just before me have wanted to get into. Good morning, Radhika. How are you? Good. I'm good. Thank you so much for hosting me. Um, yeah, sorry. I can hear a little bit of echo. Yeah, no, uh, that's okay. Is my audio so, okay? Yeah, it's perfect. Okay, great. So, Radhika is a social media influencer. I'm sure you've probably seen her on Instagram or TikTok. A lawyer by profession. So she makes videos about Kenya. And I mean, you know, I've watched a few of her videos. Really interesting. So do check out on Instagram. It's at Radhika X Core, if I'm not mistaken. Yes, so Radhika, Radhika, can you give us an introduction about yourself? You know, why did you get into social media influencing? Uh, why? I don't think um, there was a reason why particularly. I think I started posting online in um, 2017-ish where influencers were just starting to uh, blow up. There were a lot of YouTube influencers, a little bit of Instagram influencers, and almost no TikTok influencers. So it kind of just happened by accident. I started posting on TikTok in uh, December 2019 um, and I, I, I got lucky because um, you know no one was on TikTok at that time and I kind of just you know got there before anyone else and then kind of not blew up but slowly but surely grew an audience. So I want to move into you know how long did it take for it to sort of start up because I mean, I know, you know, getting content and recording it and editing it does take a while. And of course, growing that fan base does take a while. So how long roughly could you say it took to become a social media influencer? Hmm, how long did it take? So I think I started at zero followers in December 2019. And now it is, what? Oh, it's... August 2023, and I have 100,000 followers, or I actually have 99,000 followers. So it's taken ages. I mean, it's like three to four years to grow this big. But I think in the start, it was quite quick. So I think I hit 40K within the first four or five months. But then after that, it was really slow. Um, I also, you know, I got busy. I started my law career. I focused more on school than on social media. So um, my growth on social media really kind of um, slowed down. Yeah, so, but then I think um, halfway through my social media career, I also started uh, a radio job. So I was on radio for a bit. So I think that also helped kind of uh, bolster my social media presence. Interesting. Did you maybe, you know, I mean, on the last couple of episodes of people have seen that, you know, we went into the education. Do you need maybe, you know, a degree or something to get into, you know, becoming a social media influencer? Sorry, could you repeat the question? 
Yeah, yeah sure. So, as in the couple of episodes before, you know, we've asked, we've talked about education and all. Do you need any, as per se, a degree in, you know, social media to become a social media influencer? Or can anyone become a social media influencer? Okay, you obviously don't need an education to become a social media influencer, but it's a really, it's a tough job because one day you're it and the next day you're not. So while it's a great job to have and it doesn't have any barriers to entry, your social media fame also doesn't last forever, right? So that's why I want to, I just want to say that first, that's why I decided to focus on my legal career as opposed to social media, because I know it has longevity and people can be lawyers for 25, 30, 40 years. Um, more than that, you know, even 50, 60 years, you have people who are lawyers, but you will rarely ever see someone who is celebrated online or in traditional media who's past that 20 year mark. I mean, that's even an achievement in itself. But usually, you know, you're hot, you, you know, you're the hot news for probably five or six years. And then, you know, uh, there's someone else, there's someone younger, uh, maybe who looks better than you, who does it better than you. So, yeah. So why did you, you know, get into social media? I mean, you know, you could have done, there's so much, you know, out there. And why, you know, take on a hobby as social media? So I've always been um, really inclined towards social media, sharing online, making things, making videos, whether it's for myself, you know, just filming, taking photos. It was always just a hobby and I never set out to to make it an income source. I was just posting. So it kind of happened by mistake. But yeah, I was always creatively inclined. So uh, that's kind of where it started. Yeah. And then I think I also found a good niche because I do Kenyan content specifically. Uh, then there's not too much competition in that field. So I do um, Kenyan content and then I'm also of Indian ethnicity. So I had a really good kind of niche where I fit in really well and people were interested. So that obviously externally motivated me to, to keep on going. So um, this is just a quick one for the viewers. If you watch the episode with Ali Jawad, when he started Electric Tuk Tuks, he also focused on a niche. So um, there's someone that we got on earlier in the season where he started an Electric Tuk Tuk business in Mombasa, where he realized wow. that, you know, there's a niche where, you know, we're going electric, so why not create an Electric Tuk Tuk? No, that's amazing. And it's, it's always about kind of finding that niche. It's also good to, to generally be good at a wide range of things, but that niche really helps you, whether it's on social media, in the tuk-tuk business, even in my legal career, you see people who kind of niche down uh, do really well. Yeah. So are you happy being a social media influencer? I know there's a lot of controversy, you know, with some people, you know, posting things. So are you happy, you know, with what you're doing? as a social media influencer? It's difficult because I think I, I was happier when I was a, a bit younger. Um, when I was, you know, 18, 19, 20, you don't have any consequences. You post online. It's all fun and games. I mean, 
your peers and uh, your classmates may also feel like that like there's no consequences to posting on social media and it's all fun it's all a joke but I think of recent as I've started my professional career I see that there are a lot of uh, consequences to what you post online so whether it's you know your boss seeing it or a client seeing it or a competitor seeing it um, they judge you from for what you post online so like, for example, this podcast, right, I have uh, braids in and it's chilled. I don't look like a lawyer. And if someone maybe who works with me or um, who, who wants me to work for them as a lawyer, if they saw this, they, they start to question, oh, you know, is she actually a, a serious person? Can she actually be a lawyer? So I think in the recent past, no, I haven't been happy with it because I'm struggling with finding a balance of having a really good professional outlook while still being myself and having fun on social media. But right now, I think there's a lot of friction between uh, those two things. Yeah, I think uh, many social media influencers will say that, you know, whatever, especially food content creators, you know, they always have to, you know, look professional, you know. And I mean, I think that's also led to, you know, some people maybe, you know, faking reviews just so is that following base, is that fan base that they get. So, I mean, do you think that, you know, being a social media influencer, is it a career that can be, you know, can sustain you know, your living, your day-to-day -day living? Hmm. It can. Only if, obviously in the start, it's going to be difficult because you're not going to have that following, you don't have the contacts. I would say that yes, it has supplemented my income to a point where I didn't think it could. But uh, because I focus on my legal career, I don't invest enough time into my social media uh, for it to actually bear fruit. So as of now, it is not my main source of income. But I think if I if anyone worked hard enough, it could be. Uh, but then, you know, it's not a stable source of income. It's a marketing okay. job. So those are all things you need to keep in mind. We also live in Kenya, which has, if you know, if you're on YouTube, it has a really low uh, CPM. So if you're making Kenyan content for Kenyan viewers, you're not earning as much as, you know, a U.S. YouTuber. Uh, so there are a lot of factors to consider. It's probably not the most stable source of income, but it is definitely possible for it to be um, an income source. So um, I want to go into, on average, as maybe a Kenyan influencer, how much would you, like, how much do you make on average? Mm hmm. I don't think I can answer that, right? Because... I have I don't have uh, a campaign every month, for example. Uh, yeah. But maybe I can give you like a, a range, right? Yeah. And then if someone wants to do the math, they, they can kind of figure it out. Uh, so I think the lowest I would charge for a post would be like for a small business. If a small business approached me, I would charge them like a thousand shillings for a, a story post, uh, which takes you, you know, probably five or six seconds. So when you look at it per hour basis, it's quite high. Um, so that's the lowest I charge. And then um, for videos, it can go up to um, like 30,000 for a video. 
but then it depends you can be really lucky and get a brand that's like hey I want three videos a month and then you know you're balling for that month but then there'll be six months where you only get one one person who wants one story so yeah I, I'm not balling from it <laughs> yeah so I, I mean there's a lot of variation in you know how it works and I think that's what you know mainly every business mainly when starting out of course like you look at businesses when they start out it's not like you know every month they are you know selling the top products and all yeah but i mean there are certain influencers in kenya who are influencers full-time and i know they they do make a good living okay so whoever would like to you know, become an influencer, just spend a lot of time. Um, I, you know, as you can tell, the money looks like it's really good. You can never know, right? Yeah, <laughs> you, you that's never also know true. The, the, what's in the background. That's also true. So, I mean, I want to move on to, you know, the future, AI. How do you use AI, you know? What's your view on it? For social media? So, yeah, social media, day-to-day um, use... What's your view on it? I don't really use it as a everyday tool. I use it sometimes if I want a, a caption or or ideas. I don't use it to to make my content. I use it mostly to trigger my brain to be like, oh wait, this is a good thing to think about. So it's more like when you have creative block, it can really trigger you. Um, I used it quite a bit when I was on radio because um, on radio we had to think of topics every day and, you know, the human mind can't really do that. So I used to use it then quite a lot or I used to use it for captions, for social media, quite a lot. But, um, yeah, I don't think I use it every day because I like that human touch which AI can't give you and that's what really helps build an audience, right? Having that human touch. AI is also not very Kenyanized, so it doesn't have context of certain Kenya things. So, for example, I had asked it one day. I have I used to have a series where I used to talk of about um, like facts about Kenya, like historical facts. So I asked a chat GPT to give me some, and a lot of them were wrong. So it said that Kenya is one of the only countries to have a purple streetlight, uh, like the traffic lights. And I was thinking, we definitely don't have a purple light on the traffic light. We barely even have working traffic lights. So ChatGPT totally made this up. So yeah, I don't really use it. So do you think as someone, you know, that's coming up as a social media influencer, do you think they could use, you know, ChatGPT and other AI tools, you know, to use or to make, you know, videos and posts on Instagram and TikTok? No, I think to be a social media like influencer or, you know, build an audience, you either have it in you or you don't. And I don't think AI could help you as much. I'm sure there are some outliers who AI is doing wonders for them, but I think for majority of people, you either have it or you don't. So, okay, well, I mean, I've seen, you know, some, like, places where, you know, AI will make the video for you, like, the, the script for you, it'll do the voiceover for you, do basically everything for you. All you need to do is just, you know, press it and upload it on Instagram and, you know, their views. Do you think that could maybe work? No, it's boring, right? AI, AI is pulling generic information, right? 
and it's using generic stock footage, um, your brain is likely to just scroll past that. Also, our brains are going to start noticing what's AI generated, right? And it's going to start, you know, scrolling past it and filtering it out. The only place I would say I, I would think AI would really help is maybe like AI generated images. So some people may not be comfortable talking on social media. Um, so they might want to have an AI voice or they might want to have an AI video because they're not comfortable with their face online. Um, that's something I also contemplated because I was like, you know, I don't feel comfortable um, with my clients, my coworkers seeing my social media things. So maybe I should do an AI generated image. I haven't got there yet, but that could be one of the ways that you could implement AI. Okay, so I want to ask about, you know, the career as a social media influencer. Is it competitive to get into, like, I mean, right now you're at almost around 100,000 followers. Is it competitive? It's super competitive. Um, it's extremely, extremely competitive because you're competing with, number one, your age group, people in Kenya and people abroad, right? So when you're starting a traditional career, so for example, I'm a lawyer, I'm only competing with people in Kenya who have studied law. And that's a lot of people. It's like 2,000 people a year. But then when you're on the internet and you're a social media influencer, there's no boundary of the internet. You are competing with, you know, huge YouTube stars and huge TikTok stars in America for that few seconds of time that people have on their phones. So yeah, the competition is insane. And also the people who who dedicate more time obviously have more views. The people who are, you know, willing to do certain things, whether it's, you know, just to win in the short term or do controversial things are likely to, you know, pass you in the short term. And um, if you're a more of a long-term player, you obviously get, um, you start comparing yourself. Uh, you don't do as well as them. Uh, you think, how do I compete with them as well? Uh, so for me, I know that, you know, I'm competing with people who are doing social media as their job and they post three videos a day. But I only post maybe three videos a month. So, yeah, the competition is crazy. I, I think even right now I'm I'm losing followers on TikTok instead of gaining yeah, I mean, it's, uh, you know, quite competitive. I mean, you know, we watch videos almost every day. I mean, I myself, you know, first thing when I do, when I wake up, is check Instagram, which I know many people are going to say that's not good, but... I mean, yeah, if it helps so... you wake up, it helps you wake up. I do <laughs> But I think maybe it's important for you and your classmates to realize that... No, what you see on social media is not a reflection of what life actually is. And because you're so young, it might seem glorious to become this social media influencer, but go for it, do it in a respectful way, in a way that your future self will be proud of you, a, a way in which you, you're not embarrassed of it later on. Yeah, because I, I can imagine a lot of young people being pushed to do controversial things or say controversial things uh, just to get the five minutes of clout. Yeah. So you're talking about, you know, the career being competitive. Do you think that causes stress among, you know, social media influencers? It depends who you are, right? If your whole world is 
the external validation you get from the likes and comments and views, then yes, it can be stressful. Uh, but if you look further than that and you say, oh, this is like for me, the way I view my social media, I'm like, OK, cool. I'm um, I'm in the red. I'm losing followers, but I love it. And I'm still going to post whether I'm losing or gaining. I'm doing it because I like making the item or making the content, not really the external validation that comes from it. It can be stressful, though. I will say that this personally affects me when you get a lot of hate. So I get a lot of racist messages because, you know, my audience, not my audience, but maybe some people who come across my videos don't understand why I'm brown and I'm living in Africa. So I get a lot of uh, like racist comments and things like that. That is extremely stressful. Yeah, and I think it's something that, you know, as a future sort of generation, when you sort of cut out that racism or, you know, those hurtful messages, that because, you know, then again, it starts amongst problems within creators, you know. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And then, yeah, that's really stressful. It takes a toll on uh, your mental health, for sure, when you're just being hated on, especially if it's something you can't change. Yeah. So do you think, um, is there space for, you know, more people to join into the career? Yeah, there definitely is. It's harder, obviously, when it's a platform that is already existing. But I think on TikTok, yeah, for sure. There's always space. Maybe not on Instagram. Think- I can't imagine doing there. <laughs> so... The final question for today's episode, what's one piece of advice you'd give someone thinking of becoming a social media influencer? Ooh, um, I want to be careful because I feel like, you know, you're very young and so are your classmates. So it's fun, but again, just, you know, do it respectfully in a way that you are proud of the work you, um, you produce and, I would say do it because you like producing and not because you like the clout that comes with it because the the clout comes and then it goes. It, it's unstable, right? And um, also you can do it as a hobby. You don't have to be a social media influencer, right? If you like posting and you have 50 followers and you want to post as if you're an influencer and do reviews, just do it. You don't have to have this title of I am a social media influencer and I post reviews. You can do it on a small scale. You can do it as a hobby. It doesn't have to be a career. Like for me, it's not my career, right? It is my hobby, whether I make money from it or not. So that's what I would say. It's not the be all end all if you are or if you aren't a social media influencer. And it looks great and it looks prestigious, but there are a lot more things you can do that are equally as prestigious. All right, that concludes today's episode and our last episode of this season. I'd like to thank again, Radhika, for, I'd like to thank you for coming on, taking some time out of your day to do this. Thank you so much for having me. 
And, you know, I'm so glad that your school is doing something that's out of the box and doing this podcast thing. So congratulations to your school. I'm sure your teacher is super dope for allowing you to do this. And thank you for having me. And sorry I was late. <laughs> no worries, no worries. And I would also like to thank everyone else that took time out of their day to um, help me make this come true. We will be having one last episode, which is going to be a marathon of all the episodes combined in one. So do look forward to that. Other than that, from me, that is out. Radhika, any last words? See you later, and thank you for having me. All right, do make sure to check her out on Instagram and TikTok at Radhika X Core. Thank you so much for watching, and we're out.